0: Welcome to episode 536 with my guest Rebecca Rogers Maher. I am Paul Gilmartin. This here is my podcast. What a coincidence. <laughs> Who knew that I would wind up being able to host my own podcast? Oh my God, start over. You fucking idiot. No,
1: I'm blown at.
0: Mean voice in my head is alive. Alive and well right now. Uh, the website for our show is metalpod.com. Also, the social media handles you can follow us at. And, uh, I am not a therapist. This is, this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. And I think that's obvious. About three seconds in, I think by the time I'm done introducing my name and lashing myself. Anyways. Let's get to uh, a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, Rebecca. This is the Ask Paul Anything, and Hugh Jass asks, Why do you keep interviews for so long before releasing them? I was disappointed last week when the guest talked about how his movie had just come out. Then you said that it was recorded like three years ago. I understand your disappointment, and oh boy, are you going to be disappointed this week. Because this episode with Rebecca was recorded in, I believe, 2013 or 2014. And the reason is many-fold, is that a word, why I hold on to episodes for so long. Some of the reasons are um, I judge this shit out of myself for my participation in the interview. I... uh, this interview in particular with Rebecca I f- left that interview feeling like she was great but I disclosed too much personal information and and it it I just could not bring myself to listen to it and that has happened before in in interviews and even though I emailed her afterwards and apologized she was like what are you talking about it was it, it was fine you didn't disclose too much information i was totally comfortable when I decide I'm a piece of shit, that's, that's where I go. And so I could not bring myself to, to listen to it, to edit it. And then about, I don't know, three months ago, um, I have started paying uh, a producer, Brooke, to help me edit old episodes. And so she's been going through the back catalog of either episodes that I felt like it just didn't come together quite enough or I had questions about something or honestly, in my you know drug-damaged brain, I couldn't remember what we talked about. I record way more episodes than I can air. And so a lot of times, and this is not fair to my Ex guests, uh, I will air something that is fresh in my memory um, because I'm confident about it. And when things get pushed to, to, to the back, I, you know, like many things in my life, I just I will just avoid it. And it's something I'm ashamed about. And there, there you have it. So uh, Brooke has been going through the the back episodes, and and I'm. Happy to say that there's some episodes where I thought, you know, they were just so-so. And she was like, no, they're great. You should totally air this. And so we have more of those coming up. Um, And also, you know, with the pandemic, I really don't like recording people remotely. And all of these back episodes were recorded in person. So um, that's another reason. But um, I hope that answers your question. Essentially, because I'm a terrible person deep down inside, right to my very core. Does that answer your question? Oh, and in this interview with uh, Rebecca, obviously, you know, I talk about my wife because I was still married then, and I was, I don't know, probably a year or two into processing all the shit that happened with uh, with my mom, and uh, I was in a very kind of needy, confused Uh, Place. I'm sure a lot of people who have begun processing childhood sexual trauma uh, or any sexual trauma can understand that kind of uh, lost-in-space feel where you don't know where the truth is. You're questioning how you're recovering. Are you doing it right? You you know. Anyway, enough about that. This is uh, from... Uh, the Ask Paul Anything survey and uh, that black girl, shout out to that black girl, she uh, emails me now and then and, and uh, always shed some light on on something, whether it's race or uh, how I handle a subject or just to give me a high five, um, sending her a shout out. She asks, would you ever want to try uh, stand-up slash telling jokes in front of an audience again now that you're in recovery and therapy and making the effort to get better? Well, I I have been in uh, support groups and therapy and was in them even when I was still a touring uh, stand-up comedian. I retired in about 2012 from being a road comic, but I do still uh, perform uh, political satire as the uh, super right-wing character, uh, Republican Congressman Richard Martin. A lot of times I go on Jimmy Doors. Uh, podcast, especially his live shows. Um, if you if you Google, I actually think there's an actual representative named Richard Martin from like Utah or something. But I, I created this character in 2004, and I've uh, been doing it on and off since then. It's not something that I go in and do on the road and you know make make money from, but I do it kind of for me because um, it's just it's kind of like my picket sign. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp online therapy. I highly recommend, recommend. Yeah, it's an, it's a new form of recommendation. It's, it's for, it's for tongue-tied people that need, uh, need something to be suggested to them. Uh, go to betterhelp.com slash metal. Make sure you include this slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast. And, uh, why wouldn't you want to do it from the comfort of your home? I'm not even going to wait for an answer. I'm just going to plow ahead. Go to betterhelp.com mental. Fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel like would be a good fit for you, they will match you up with one. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it is your thing. And uh, you need to be over 18. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself certified bootlicker. I did not know that uh, you could get a little plaque. For that. I, I've got to assume that it's uh, the logo is a tongue and a boot. And he writes, uh, literally paid both my roommates to leave the house so that I could have a good loud wank. I think it was worth the 50 bucks since I no longer feel like throwing the refrigerator out the window. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I... I don't know if I've ever been loud by myself. Sometimes I get loud with a partner, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. A good loud wank by yourself. God bless you. I'm a little concerned about uh, throwing the appliances out the window. That's gotta that's gotta get expensive. So that makes sense to me. Saving money. I mean, refrigerator refrigerator is about a thousand bucks. You save $950, and you got to have an orgasm. So kudos to you. Uh, and then this is uh, just a snippet from a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Chelsea, and she struggles uh, with OCD and anxiety. And uh, she writes, When I was very young, six or seven, my teacher would put a plus sign on the activities I got right, And I would think they were crosses, as in a sign from God that a family member of mine would die while I was in school. Left. I'm here with Rebecca Rogers Marr, who is a uh, she's a novelist, and um, you contacted me about possibly being a guest on the on the show. And my first in- instinct was because you you write kind of gritty romance mm-hmm. uh, novels, and my my first instinct was like ah, that. <laughs> no, my first instinct was no, because I, A, I don't, I don't really read romance novels. Oh, you I don't. don't? I No, and I don't, and I don't really read, or were you being sarcastic? Yeah. Okay. I don't read, um, I really don't read uh, fiction much mm-hmm. at all. 99% of what I watch and read is nonfiction. And then I thought, well, send me a t- two or three page excerpt so I can read it mm-hmm. and and you did and i read it and i was like oh this person has a deep understanding of addiction and trauma and thank you so i was like well let's do this i'm i'm not going to talk about your your books we're not going to talk about the mm-hmm. that aspect of it and but hopefully i think i said to you in the email what we talk about if you if you want to gain readers for your for your books, what we talk about here, will clue them in as to what kind of a well you, you draw upon uh, to write with. But like I said, from the, the three or four pages that, that I read, it was like, oh, this person is, has done some soul searching.
1: A bit, yes. <laughs> yes, and thank you.
0: So uh, how's that for a long-ass weird <laughs> introduction? <laughs> it works for me. Yeah, you live in New York City. You have a, a husband and a couple of kids.
1: Yeah, I live in Brooklyn, yeah. Carroll Gardens, hmm
0: I want to visit Brooklyn so badly. You should. I get such great support from people there. I've heard such good things about the, uh, what is it, the Bell House? Yeah. Where people go record podcasts there. Yeah. Um, I want to come. And then there's people who I've had as guests on this show who have podcasts that live in Brooklyn who have invited me to come do theirs. And it's just, it feels like a Brooklyn trip is... uh, isn't it funny how now it's Brooklyn? It used to be like Manhattan, and Manhattan's like...
1: No, it's Brooklyn now. Yeah, you should come. It's it's really wonderful.
0: Yeah, I've never been to Brooklyn. I have been to mm-hmm. Manhattan and um, Queens and Long Island, but never been to Brooklyn.
1: Queens and Long... Okay. Yeah. It's high time.
0: So where would be a good place? I guess we... Uh, you know, let's talk about uh, your, your childhood.
1: Okay. Um, well, I mean, I grew up right outside of new york city in westchester county which is a very wealthy one of the wealthiest places in so the you, world to grow come, up you come you come from money i don't actually um we were very broke in in a very wealthy neighborhood oh that's town. that's yeah it was i mean that it, sounds hard it was it was hard i mean it was um advantageous because we had i had access to a great public school mm-hmm. and you know i was surrounded by kids who went to college and who felt entitled to go to college and to, you know, um, take advantage of, you know, kind of elite resources that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. So I'm grateful for that, but it was hard in the sense of being, you know, the Kmart kid, uh,
0: so did you live in like the shitty part of Westchester, we yeah okay, we, well, where no, the no. help, where the help lives? No,
1: no well, I lived um in a little town called North Salem, which is at the time it was pretty rural, but I lived around Peach Lake, which is uh kind of the ghetto of North Salem, and I think it might And still, is that Connecticut or New York it's New York, it's right on the border though, okay um, so I mean, it was like middle middle class community, but we but we were sort of on the lower end of it and renters and sort of always kind of searching the couch for change to buy milk and that sort of thing. Um, so that I, I think whatever you know, my family relationships kind of happened against that backdrop of being already kind of outsiders in our community feeling like, you know, we 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 were faking it, you know, Pat trying to pass.
0: Was there was there a feeling that your parents were passing themselves off as something that they weren't when they were out and about in their daily lives, or was it um, just that they no. were just kind of trying to hide what the reality of what their
1: what they their life doing, was? No, they neither. They weren't doing any hiding at all. They were not even really presenting themselves, you know, to the lar- like. They never came to school. My um, parent-teacher conferences. They never came to school. They were very, you know, we lived on this kind of cul-de-sac, and they didn't. They didn't socialize very much. So
0: you got to be really antisocial to not socialize in a cul-de-sac. I grew up in a cul-de-sac <laughs> and it's like everybody knows everybody.
1: Yeah. No, we had a couple of friends there. Um yeah. you know that we, we did, but it was they weren't, you know, um
0: Did you have kids your age in the cul-de-sac?
1: I didn't, but my sisters did. So I'm so I'll backtrack. I'm I'm the youngest of four girls. Um there were a lot of kids in the neighborhood but none really my age. Um but we were, you know,
0: you probably wouldn't have been a writer if you'd had, know, <laughs> you'd right? had more uh, I, more kids your age. I mean, that's a long <laughs> shot, but that's the first thought that strikes me is, you know, every every person that makes their profession writing has to be thankful in some way for the things that force them to be imaginative. Uh, that's do you feel true. that? do you feel that way?
1: Yes, yeah, Steph. I mean, I spent. Um, I spent a lot of time. We lived right on a golf course and by a lake. I spent a lot of a lot of time alone when I was a kid. A lot of time wandering, just being gone all day, um, playing with my stuffed animals and playing imagination games. So yeah, I guess I never thought of it that way. But I guess yeah, that contributed.
0: But go ahead. Yeah, you had another thought before I uh, uh, about growing up there. You were the you were the youngest kids, youngest kid. Right, four girls on a cul-de-sac. Nobody really your age. Your parents kind of just didn't. They didn't come to your events.
1: No, because they felt like outsiders too. I think you know they. um, Both of my parents had. First of all, they married young and they had us very young. My mother was only twenty when she had my first sister. Um, and they. She was coming from a pretty traumatic family background, and so was my dad. And they. And they got together, you know, and. Sort of acted as parents functionally, but didn't really know what to do. Like
0: emotionally, right? No, like provided, but
1: right. Well, m- mostly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you
0: didn't starve, right?
1: No, I didn't starve. Yeah, no. Um,
0: you didn't sleep on the street. No, they quit didn't. your whining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no,
1: no, actually, but- I think I think given what they what they um, came from, I'm. You know, I I will talk about some of the you know, issues that I have with my parents. But I I am grateful for what they did. One of the things that they did was to move us. They grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, which at that time was kind of rough. Um, And we moved around a lot before we settled in North Salem. But they they brought us to a place where we would have access to opportunities that they didn't have. So even though they didn't, you know, participate actively, they put us there, um, which is valuable. For example. What?
0: Like, what are some examples? of things that they didn't participate in but they gave you
1: well just by living there and being by able to bl- being go- in
0: a good high school where people went to college and yeah. stuff like that so i see yeah having a good learning environment
1: yeah and they you know they were very um they loved to read both of them loved to read so we always had a house full of books they loved music so i grew up listening to you know fantastic folk music and um you know like 50s kind of um buddy holly type of great music we did a lot of singing and um they loved to be outside so we would go on picnics and things like there was a lot of you know love there they just um they didn't i think they were in over their heads
0: and it sounds like they were also in a little bit of a cocoon
1: right they didn't have a lot of support outside of um you know my dad i don't think my dad really had very many friends at all when I was growing up and my mom.
0: Were they shy, your parents?
1: Yeah. My dad, um, well, I'm hesitant to tell too much of his story out of respect for his privacy, but he um, he kept to himself a lot. Um, and he, you know, kind of struggled with his own mental health issues that kind of kept him isolated. <clears throat> you
0: think he had battled depression?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, and anxiety and alcoholism. Yeah. Um so that's some big shit, yeah, uh
0: what was their were they fond of each other? your parents
1: um they had a very volatile marriage um I do believe that they loved each other, but they fought a lot, and it was vicious um and violent sometimes um, not i I never uh received f- any sort of physical um I was never hit, mm-hmm. but everyone else was. <laughs> Every, really? Everybody else was, yeah.
0: Did they resent you, your siblings, because you never got hit? Or was um, it they were so much older that it was...
1: They were significantly older. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I got the lion's share of the affection that was available in our family because I was the baby. And, you know, I um, my my closest sister to me is four years older, and then they're four, six and seven years older than me. So they're, they, you know, had their conflicts with each other but i was always the little one and so you know to the extent that my parents weren't able to provide nurturing they stepped in and provided it for me
0: you know i always think too that that last kid the baby of the family especially if there's an age gap between them and the other ones is i sometimes think that the parents probably want to savor it like that last potato chip in the bag yeah totally like let's Let's yeah, love did. this one as much as we can. Let's let's try to be as present as we can or whatever whatever their idea of parenting is, that that just if I put myself in their shoes, I would want to this is the last time we're gonna get to see yeah. her, you know, do this or that.
1: And I think, you know, I I was aware of that. I I I imagine that I was very aware of that as a child, like um taking advantage of that because I was very sweet to them like i really went out of my way to hug and kiss them and like i would write like little love notes for them and leave it on their pillow i'd make their coffee in the morning you know like i just tried i tried because they was it coming from a
0: genuine place
1: i don't know i mean i think um i don't know because i i don't i don't remember my childhood really at all i have only a handful of actual memories a lot of it is gone
0: that's you know that's usually I know what the what that's a sign of,
1: I know I know I know it's a, I know that it is a sign of trauma, there was a lot of trauma, um so I don't really have a sense of who I was, you know before fifteen or sixteen years old
0: did it the stuff you did as a child was that do you think that was so that? You would feel safe that it would make them happier, and there wouldn't be so much volatility in yes, them.
1: Absolutely, and yeah. it worked because you know I was I was loving to them, and I received love in return. I was never, um, you know, my dad said to my children recently, it was like your mom was like a like an angel brought her to our door and left her there, like she just speaking never, about you, yeah, yeah, like I that I never, and he he to his. You know, it was kind of him, actually. He said, "I bet she doesn't feel this way about it now. I bet she has different like feelings of anger about it now. But when she was a kid, he said that I was um, I just never had a crossword for anybody. So I have to imagine that some of that was genuinely me just being a loving person. I hope so. Um, but I also think that I really was afraid to ever. Be angry or difficult in any way because I was afraid of getting hurt you know and I was afraid of losing what little attention I had like the way that I could get attention was by being a straight a student and and super sweet all the time to everybody and it took a long time to undo that you know it was eventually you know it became really burdensome to be nice all the time and um and the kind of like the monster started to creep out, you know, but when I was a little child, I don't think, I don't think that was there yet.
0: How, how does the monster creep out <laughs> in in you? Because this is a, this is something, by the way, which I very much relate to, because I, there was always drama going on around me. Sometimes it was very silent, but there was either t- the tension between my mom and my dad or the tension between my mom and my brother. Mm. And I just always was like, I just want everybody to get along. You know, I want it to be smiles. I want everybody to be happy. So that became my pr- primary way of feeling that, th- that a room is safe, is if I can do whatever I have power mm. over to see that everybody's happy, even if it's a non-family member, Right. then I'll be okay. And that comes at a cost. Yeah. And so then I, as I got older, and I want to see if this is the case with you too, I wouldn't, I, I would not only would I not be able to express what I was feeling or to be able to stand up to somebody, but I didn't even know what I was feeling. Yeah. I didn't even know that I didn't like something yeah. or I did like something. T- tell me about your experience with the hiding.
1: That's such a good point. I mean, because it, first of all, it's a lot of pressure. Like you describe, it's a lot of pressure to be responsible, to feel responsible for the mood of the room all the time. Um, but yeah, I think that's exactly what you're talking about, and I think this is probably true for a lot of women too, in general, that we we are so accustomed to um, taking care of everybody else's needs, we don't even stop to ask what do I need or what do I want. But of course, you ha- a person has needs and wants, and they will come out sideways if they're not coming out directly, and that's that's what I'm talking about with the monster that like, you know, I would just be nice and nice and nice and nice until. I just couldn't, you know, take it anymore, and then I would become, you know, I don't think vicious, but um, I think for me it has played out in resentment, like bitterness. I'm so good all the time, and I don't get back from the world, what I give to it, and that's not fair, and I I um, feel just depleted all the time, and I feel resentful of that. And, how, and so,
0: how would the bitterness, would it just stay within you, or would it come out, would you express it to people?
1: You know, I, um, I would express it, sure, but sarcastically, <laughs> or um, just being incredibly demanding, unrealistically demanding of people, you know?
0: Outwardly or in your head?
1: Um, outwardly, you know, where it comes out is being super judgmental, just like, well, I've got my shit together. Why don't you have your shit together? You know, and like, here's the 49 different ways that you can get your shit together. Follow my steps or I will be angry with you, you know, or I'll be disappointed in you or I will nag you. I mean, that's definitely a pattern I've had in a lot of friendships and relationships.
0: Yeah. You know, it it just struck me as you were sharing that about the being critical of things it it almost seems like that would have to be natural because when you're raised constantly gauging the temperature of the room and gauging what can i do to control this mm. as a child you have to begin to really understand humans and to try yeah. to break down what is their motivation, why is this person doing this, how can I step in here, blah, 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 blah. So you become critical.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the the ship is springing leaks all over the place. You have to be able to identify where the leaks are and figure out how to plug them so that the ship doesn't go down. That's how I felt. Yeah. And so. When I mean,
0: you start to lose that childhood resiliency inside mm-hmm. you, then you're just left with the critical
1: Exactly. the critical thinking. Like I see that I see the water rushing in there I see it rushing in there like I'm I'm the you know um foremost authority on what is wrong with you. That's definitely been like um
0: What great training for a writer though. I
1: know. It's good training for a writer, it's not the best training for, you know, um intimacy though because it's a way (laughs) that's an understatement you know because it's It's a way of keeping people at bay it's just you know like i would i would allow myself to be close to you if only you would do x y and z and but you know because it feels
0: false to be to to be really really intimate with somebody that is doing something that is driving you crazy feels like sandpaper on my skin it feels like i'm being a fraud
1: It feels unsafe too. You know, it's like if I, like, I want the other person to be completely perfect and competent so that they won't hurt me. And that's a big part, you know, of the childhood stuff too. It's like if I can, if I can patch these leaky holes, then I won't get hurt. You know, it's like it becomes this like compulsion. Like if I can just fix this person or make it them feel better or make everybody calm down, then I won't get hurt.
0: They'll, they'll be calm and still. And I can, I can collapse around this person. That's right. Instead of having to be on guard.
1: Right. But it never works. No. It never, never, ever works. It's just, it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy of fixing.
0: Resentment is, it's so, especially for kids (laughs) that stuff their feelings, it's so hard to, I suppose for everybody, not just kids that stuff their feelings.
1: Well, I mean, I think what's hard about it is that it's, you can't, It doesn't ever work because it's focusing all of the energy on the other person, on the other side of the street, you know, which you can never reach. It's just, you know, obsessively focusing on something that you can never do anything about because it's not your business.
0: And yet you've had the illusion because you were able to orchestrate as a child this illusion that you can do that in every situation. Right.
1: And it's in fact, it it is kind of a bind because I actually did become very good at that. And, And, you know, I was... I was a community organizer when I first started working. That was a, a job where I put those skills to work. You know, I there are political problems in this neighborhood. We're going to get organized and we're going to fix them. That's that's what you do. And then I was a teacher in a in a very. Um, you know, an at risk, low income school in Brooklyn. Same thing, sinking ship. Like I, I had all the I had this skill set of triage. You know, I could be like an emergency an ER worker. And I was good at it. And and with my friends too. Like I'm very I'm a good good listener. I give very good concrete advice. I'm s i am still teach and I'm good at it because I have these skills, but it's you know, it's not always appropriate to apply them and it's really difficult to decide when to try to fix something and when to just accept it.
0: Boy, is that an understatement. Right? I mean, oh it's... Oh, my God. That's, it's so hard. I think that's the hardest thing in, in daily life is, is dealing with that gray area and going, yeah. when, when do I let it go and when do I step in? But I got to say, the, most of the peace and the freedom that I have felt has been from not doing anything, from yeah. not trying to orchestrate, from just going, hey, these people are on their own path I'm not, I'm not here to save them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe they need to have their front teeth knocked out, um, -hmm. figuratively, uh, (laughs) for them to know that they need to get help. I can't rush in and, you know, pay their rent or, or, or or whatever, or tell them that they're in a toxic relationship for the fifth time. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe they need to have to get a restraining order on this crazy girlfriend that they're, that they're with. Um,
1: And you just have to let that play out on its own time. I mean, I think the damaging, I'm really, I realize that I'm starting out being very critical of myself, which is okay. I mean, I think I'm not like angry about myself, uh, at myself about this stuff. I'm just reflecting on it, but I I do. In
0: this moment, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because
1: I'm talking about myself as being resentful and critical, Um, but I actually feel very compassionate towards myself about that I feel like it was a natural way for me to have you know um developed and survived and it's okay I would like to let it go now but you know the 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 sad part in terms of relationships is that when I you know go in with the attitude that I'm fixing the other person feels broken that's the that's the dynamic I'm the fixer and you're broken and that does not make people feel good. And no. it does not make them feel empowered to change their own lives and get better on their own. It makes them feel dependent and...
0: Constantly scrutinized.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I have I have just had to be, you know, a lot more thoughtful about that. And, you know, I, it's still hard for me, but I'm working on you know particularly the people that are very close to me like just trusting them trusting that they can they'll figure it out and it's not my business to figure it out for them Um, but you know that it's okay It, it, it it was a coping strategy that worked for me and actually I did a lot I've done a lot of good in my professional and personal life using those skills but it's time to move on, I think. Yeah, And that's partly why I started writing. You know, I wanted to, like I had been doing these like um, caretaking types of jobs. And I, I started writing just to have something to do that was completely mine, that was, you know, selfish. I wanted to do something selfish. And, um, you know, I don't want to talk about my books specifically, um, but I will say that the, process of writing romance is very conducive to recovery stuff because it's like it's like having a I think of it like in this kind of Jungian way like as it's having a dream because a romance novel has to have a happy ending whatever the problem is it has to get solved and so you know that set up this kind of like fairy tale dynamic and with each of my books I've had a problem, like a personal problem, that I didn't know how to solve, and I would give it to a made-up character and create this whole fictional world, and then just see how it wrote itself. And then at the end of the book, I would have information about how I could solve that problem myself. You oh, was interesting. I mean? Yeah, I didn't. Know, I didn't go in knowing what the solution would be in any of them. I just had, you know, like I and um, I, I wanted to talk. I, we will talk. I think about the. Um, rape and sexual abuse stuff, but like one of the books is about a in rape your in, your in personal, my personal life. Yeah. yeah, one one of my books was about a rape survivor, and I st- and that was a hard book to write. But part of it was like I don't know what to do with this problem. I'm just going to give it to somebody and then see and see how it resolves. And you
0: know, it, it's int- go ahead, finish your thought.
1: I just learned, you know, I um, my thought is just that I think writing is a good way to kind of I, I feel like you know maybe this is a little philosophical but like I think we have the answers to problems in our in our, in us they're in mm-hmm. there we just have to listen but we don't listen yeah you know and with this particularly with being like a kind of caretaker type where you're not checking in with yourself but what you need you know it was hard for me like I didn't really have the s- strategies for like how to listen to myself and figure out what I wanted and so I have used writing as this way to get at it like through the back door <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it makes what I mean?
0: sense to me I mean if if you've if you're not used to taking your own temperature because you're busy taking the temperature of the room, how do yeah. you know when you have a fever? Yeah. Um, but what what struck me um, when you were talking about that was how sometimes you can f- only find compassion through yourself through writing about... Putting your experience on these other people and then kind of letting it unfold—that reminds me of an exercise that uh, one of our guests, uh, Guy Winch, had people do, which is um, if you can't make a list of nice qualities about yourself, that's do an exercise you have right? do it right yeah. as if you're writing it about a friend, and that just struck me that that's exactly what you must experience in your writing is then you get a kind of a an aerial view of what the truth is and it's a little easier to accept that maybe
1: yeah absolutely because i care i care about these characters you know i want them to be happy in a way that i might not necessarily and happiness is going to be the ending for all of them you know that's like the deal with romance they it will end well for them um and so it's you know that 's not something I would necessarily allow myself right out of the mm-hmm. gate, but it 's a way to kind of get there backwards
0: uh, if i th- there 's a premise for one of your books that uh, that I love, and um, i think if if my listeners are interested in reading one of your books, it might be the one to start with, which is the bridge, which yeah. starts with two people. A romance starting with two people that find each other uh, both about to jump off of a bridge to their death.
1: The Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn
0: Bridge, yeah. So, um.
1: I should say that my, it's kind of a fake out, because although I write romance novels, they're not like normal romance novels. They're, they're fucked up, and they're these, like, incredibly painful stories, but there's a lot of sex in them, and they end happy. So they have those conventions but and
0: from from what I understand the sex is pretty uh, graphic and non-traditional as well. I, yep. I I haven't read any of the scenes but um, yeah. I think I read a review that somebody uh said that.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um Yeah, they're gra- I mean that we can talk about that later too like how fun it is to write sex scenes. I recommend it. Um Why but-
0: so, why why so cuz you just let that part of your your brain kind of go and it's freeing.
1: Yeah, and it's you know, I mean Okay, well, we can take this tangent right now. Um, you know, I think that, per- again, particularly women are uh, tend to be reluctant to think about sex and desire in their own body, our own bodies. And it's absurd that we don't talk about sex more and that we don't write about it and we don't see it more. It's such a dri- it's an, a driving force of every- everybody is thinking about sex like 98% of their day. But, you know... In a in a movie, even if it's a love story, you have all of the build up, and then when it gets to the bedroom scene, they go and shut the door. Why did you know? Like, why? Dude, why don't we? Aren't we thinking about and looking at what sex is like? Yeah, you know, P- particularly for people who are recovering from trauma, because it's so intense and scary. I mean. It's, and terrifying to be like literally emotionally, physically naked in front of somebody else is incredibly scary and you know that is interesting you know to look at how people um, you know get through those moments and you know to the extent that they can connect with another human being or not during those moments that is really interesting to me and empowering because it's a way for, it has been a way for me to think about, you know, sort of reclaim sex as this, like, powerful, emotional, meaningful thing and not, you know, um, not a shameful or embarrassing or painful thing.
0: So You know, you, when you were talking about, about that, uh, the thought popped into my head of how many women in the survey, uh, the Shame and Secret survey can't even picture themselves in a sexual fantasy when they masturbate. They can't picture themselves in it, so they picture somebody else.
1: This is why romance is popular. I mean, this is yeah. why, because it's a way to get to get there. <laughs> I think for yeah. a lot of women, you can imagine a, a fictional heroine um, and enjoy that because you can put yourself in her shoes, but it's very difficult to own it personally.
0: Yeah. Because then you got to think about your body and what you don't like about your body. Yeah, exactly. Or,
1: or what you want and how fucked up that might be. Yeah. Or, you know, um, how emotional that might be, too. How
0: fucked up that might be because you have wants or because your want is non traditional in your mind.
1: Both. And okay. I, I think most people feel like their wants are non traditional, <laughs> right? <laughs> there yeah. is something sick about what, you know, like we all. Ex-
0: Especially if you've experienced trauma. Yeah. I mean, the, the fantasies that I've. That I started having after I confronted the stuff that my mom did to me. These were fantasies I never had until I looked Mm. that trauma in the face. And then they were like mom fantasies. Like either my mom or a a different mother figure. And it would be like me fantasizing about being 11 years old again. And it was the most powerful orgasm in the world to me to fantasize about that. and my first instinct was like you just jerked off thinking about being 11 years old again and being ab- abused yeah. by somebody who's supposed to take care of you what but i didn't judge it i went okay this is this is something to explore this is this is certainly something to talk to people in my support group about my close friends there, something yeah. to talk to my therapist about. And this is something to to try to maybe help understand what my brain is doing and to share with other people because mm-hmm. I know I can't be the only one that is, that is going through this. And I began to realize between that and reading the surveys that our brain has a way of wanting to get into a time machine and go back to that trauma but redirect it, mm-hmm. recast it, and say, "I'm the one who's choosing right to have this inappropriate bath, right you know, but it's going to be with a woman who feels safe to me right. or whatever, whatever the details of it are. And so when people confide in me, particularly people who have been sexually abused, that they have these fucked up fantasies about wanting to, you know, be abused again, or yeah. very often, in, in the case of women, they when they masturbate, they picture a girl. That was the age they were when they were abused. And they picture a man abusing that fictitious girl. And right. I say to them, this is your brain. This This doesn't mean that you enjoy this. This is your brain trying to make sense of what
1: happened yeah, to you. Yeah,
0: yeah. But it was very shaming when it, when it first started coming up because, you know, there's such a difference between right before you orgasm and after you orgasm know, about right. how you feel about what it is that yeah. you just thought about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, but good for you for being able to just to observe it compassionately and not judge yourself. I mean, maybe you weren't able to entirely do that at first, but I was about ninety. I was about
0: 90% there, but I'd been in a support group for four right. years that dealt with all that kind of stuff, so...
1: So you must have been ready.
0: I was ready, mm-hmm. and I'd been warned by, by people who had experienced trauma that... Um, it comes up in a way that is not linear and it doesn't make sense and yeah. don't judge it and just go with it and talk about it with people that are safe. But let's get back to you.
1: Well, I think, no, I mean, I think this relates, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, part of what's so difficult about, uh, so let me say, I, I, I talked to you about this earlier that I would prefer not to talk about the specifics of my childhood abuse, but I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. And Can you give me some specifics? <laughs> <laughs> no. I cannot. Thanks for asking, um, but it's you know what's so tricky about it is that it's not like the way that we are used to talking about sexual assault is you know the stranger in the dark alley, and that's the only acceptable version that we have in our culture of rape. You yeah, know, it's I, so rare. Like that I that was is... wearing, I was wearing a turtleneck and wool slacks and hiking boots and a trench coat. No. A parka in an alley and a and a complete stranger for no reason. It was in the middle of the day, you know. Like I was, I I was sober. Everything I did, everything right, and a stranger came up with a gun and forced me to have sex with him. And that is the only thing that's rape. That's that's sort of the version that we have, right. and lots of sexual abuse survivors carry that version too. So you know, you look at what actually happened in your life and you say that wasn't abuse because I. Um, I loved the perpetrator, or I knew the perpetrator, or I didn't say no, I didn't run, I didn't tell anybody. I, or the, I think this is the hardest one, I experienced my body responded, you mm-hmm. know? Like I, I, I craved that um, connection. And so that can't be abuse. And there's, I think you know, that's
0: the biggest one.
1: Yeah, there's and there's this kind of like, I feel like I really struggled with this kind of magical thinking about it like and vacillating between like either I caused it, like it was my fault, I should have been more aware, I should have been more clear, or I should have been less of something and more of something else. It was my fault. The perpetrators were innocent. Or the perpetrators are like horrible evil monsters and i was completely innocent and did nothing to participate in it at all and those two i have spent a lot of time swinging between those two poles and neither of those is true and will ever be true really for for most uh particularly with childhood sexual abuse but really all I think sexual assault you're never going to get a clear picture like that you know and it's hard to it's really hard to recover when you can't blame somebody I think that's what it is when you can't definitively say in a black and white way this is what you know this is whose fault it was and,
0: and I experienced that pendulum it, 50 times a day it would swing back and yeah. forth between what are you talking about You're you're making this up you're exaggerating and I want to kill that fucking person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, um, imagine applying that way of relating to people to every relationship that you have. You know, I think that's what we do. Like even I think there's this, you know, at least what I experienced was a lot of this like, oh, my God, I love you so much. I need you so much. Like, this is perfect. One second, and then the next second, you like you fucking prickly, I hate you or evil. You know, you like this, you're this. smothering me. Yeah, you're yeah. gonna
0: be with this thing, annoying <laughs> thing you do. You're gonna do it the rest of your life. I gotta get the fuck out of yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. You feel overwhelmed.
1: Yeah, but I think it's you know it's less about the other person and more I think about and maybe this is I don't know if this is obvious or not, but it's more I for me it has been about like forgiving myself for my for my participation, you know, like, and I don't mean that I was to blame, but that I, I, you know, like I have two, I have two little boys and I, you know, I don't, they are eight and six and they experience sexual feelings, like physical feelings. And they like all the time, really a lot. And they um I
0: had boners constantly.
1: At oh that my age. god, right. Constantly. And they're like constantly with their hands down their pants. And they yeah. want to be on they want to touch my boobs, you know, they want to mm. kiss me on the lips. Like they just they're directed at me. You know, they um and it's that's been wonderful for me to see as an adult because it is totally normal. Like it's that's just what kids do. Like mm-hmm. that's just what human beings do. We're like physical, sensual creatures, you know, like we are curious and affectionate and the boundaries aren't clear and um, and and that's totally fine you know like the the important thing is to have adults in your life who can set, draw a boundary know and what stay the boundary with it is, yeah. yeah and not shame you
0: exactly. because you don't know as a kid that yeah
1: you know. not shame you exactly
0: yeah. um, so did seeing your how naturally sexual your children are at that age did that help you have more compassion for any for lack of a better word pleasure you might have gotten from what happened to you as a child
1: yeah absolutely and like yes um
0: was it can i ask was it a single instance was it more than one instance
1: it was more than one um yes i definitely i mean I will say though too, I I ha- have had a lot of years in the support groups as well, and in I
0: are you still in them? Not no. Okay.
1: Although I go back for a tune up once okay. in a while, um, but I am in therapy. And actually I started going to therapy when I was sixteen. Like my parents were um separating and therapy was not a thing that happened in any to anybody that we knew. <laughs> but um, you know, I was a reader, so I knew that it existed and I found a therapist and the our like I looked up our health our insurance plan, I found a therapist and I said I bet I asked my mom to drive me. And she wow. very reluctantly drove me there every single week. And um,
0: had she known about your sexual abuse?
1: Ah, that's a tricky question. Um, There was a lot for me to be going to therapy about. Let's just put it that way. Um, And she, you know, my parents had a very bad divorce, a painful divorce. So there was, that was happening at that time. And so.
0: You had a lot on your plate, huh?
1: I did. Yeah. And my sisters were gone at that point. So it was a lot that I was trying to keep afloat uh, simultaneously by myself, you know.
0: And being the good girl on top of all of it,
1: yeah. So, but I, so I've been you know in therapy on and off since age sixteen. I'm thirty nine now, so I have a lot of years of working through this stuff under my my belt. You know, so by the time I had my kids, you know, it wasn't completely news to me that kids um, have sexual feelings and that's okay. But it has been like a great object lesson to just see it truly among you know. With two people that I love and are completely blameless to me, you mm-hmm. know, like they are just completely okay. there's no doubt <laughs> that they are one hundred percent okay in the way that I might have might sometimes still doubt my myself you know i ha you know i one of the reasons I wanted to come on the show was to talk about about sexual abuse, but i'm having i feel like it's really. I'm sure you've had this experience and maybe other guests have too. It's just really, it's hard to talk about it. <laughs> and it's, um, it's hard to separate the strands of what's going on when it particularly.
0: Uh, it is a tangled ass bowl of spaghetti. Yeah. It is so hard to know. First of all, to, to accept that there is no objective truth. Do you know what I mean? There's only our experience, what we experienced. Some of our memories may even be a little bit hazy. Mm -hmm. um, But that doesn't matter because this isn't usually about prosecuting somebody else. This is about working through it Mm -hmm. and identifying what we feel and finding a way to cope so that we don't destroy our lives through tuning other people out or numbing ourselves with substances that aren't healthy for us that that to me is has been what i've learned and i've also learned that there's a pretty awesome bond between talking with somebody like the conversation that we're having i i feel like
1: oh my god that first time that you go into the room like the support group room and people are just even just the power of having other people talk about it openly and describe a story, you know, that, you know, I feel like the part of, something I want to talk about is not just the abuse, but the way that the, like your inner circle, the people around you respond to it and what a kind of secondary trauma that is. Like the... You're
0: um, talking about the family members yeah. or whoever, how they don't, aren't equipped to deal with it. Right. I think that, I think that trauma is, is often even worse than, is the, worse than the initial trauma because the initial trauma you can almost understand how the perpetrator in their sickness can be compelled line, to do yeah. that mm-hmm. because they're in the state of frenzy or sickness or whatever but the objective person that you go to yeah that's the nail on the coffin to me because that person isn't in a frenzy right and they're
1: but they're but they're buying into the stranger in a dark alley, alley yes. you know I- image of sexual abuse too and You know, a couple, probably five or six years ago, I took a class at the New School in Manhattan called The Literature of Forgiveness, which was an amazing class about how people um, deal, cope in the aftermath of genocide. And we watched um, a film about Rwanda. And you know, not that I'm—I'm I'm certainly not equating my experience at all with the genocide in Rwanda. Clearly, that is like unimaginable horror. But there was something that I saw in this documentary that, um, that really was like painful but awakening for me to see. And that was, you know, like st- st- like structurally, the issue in that country is that you had one group of people massacring another group of people and then there were so many people involved in the in perpetrating the crimes that once once the carnage was over they couldn't possibly prosecute all of the perpetrators Just half the country
0: would be in jail.
1: Exactly. There was no in, there was not there wasn't the money, you know, to like keep them in jail. Um, And so people had to just continue, they had to just move on as though it hadn't happened. You know, you have perpetrators and victims living side by side in the same village. And, you know, there was, you know, the sort of pressure to forgive. And they had these, um, you know, these reconciliation councils and things like that, which, you know, I'm not against forgiveness. I think that's a wonderful thing to do, but it was, you know, forced. Um, And you could see uh, there were interviews with women who, you know, had literally had their babies ripped off their backs and murdered in front of them and then were raped you know their husbands and brothers all killed and they were expected to to live with the person who did that as their neighbor and act like it hadn't happened and the i just looked in the faces of these women and they were just fucking gone they were Gone. They were not there in their bodies at all. They were thousands of miles away. They could not cope with that. It just seemed to me that they couldn't cope with not not <clears throat> only the atrocity, but the fact that they were a- expected to act as though it hadn't happened right. and just continue on as though the person who perpetrated it had wasn't a monst- fucking monster. And, and, and,
0: yeah. And much like the the mother that tells the daughter that comes to her and says, you're, you're, my stepdad, your new husband is doing things to me. Yeah. And she says, you're lying.
1: Yeah. It's like, what? You know, like, I like I, it's such a mind fuck. It's like, I, I know, I know that this is the reality. But if everybody else around me is acting as though that's not the reality, you start to feel crazy. Yeah. Like, there's some, like, it's a terrible choice. It's either I'm crazy and there is a community that I could eventually join, or I'm sane and I am alone. <laughs> Those are terrible options, you know? So
0: what did you feel when you walked into that support group?
1: I felt like, God, like, oh my God, you know, here here are people who will talk about this openly. It was such, I mean, it was, and everybody would say this, I I hate being in this chair right now. This room is the last place in the world I want to be. It is the only place I can be. <laughs> Everybody That's would say a perfect that. Perfect way of saying that. It, because it is excruciating, but it is the only place where the truth is being told. And there is an incredible relief in having the truth be told and being able to tell it. You know, I mean the one the one story that I feel like I can tell and I'll talk to you about this a little bit was a um, an, att- an attempted rape that happened when I was an adult and in a lot of ways mirrored the childhood stuff. So um I was twenty. I was living in a um, in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, where I was. Um, I went to Vassar, but I was a year uh, for a year um, at Smith College in that area, and I was living with my boyfriend um, for a summer. We had subletted an apartment, subleased an apartment. Because um, I will say one thing: after I graduated high school, I never went home again—not for any break, or I never went there to live. I, w- I, I was worked. it a con- conscious decision? Yeah.
0: What was the What was the conscious thought?
1: I just. Um, you know, my mom and i were were not getting along, and i i it wasn't even really that at that point it was i i you know I survived by the skin of my teeth. that's the way I thought of it at the time. like I just barely made it out of there alive without killing myself or
0: suicidal thoughts were pretty predominant,
1: yes, I was in a lot of danger when I was a teenager, really when I look back on like how closely i was um you know, I cut myself I was um I was really seriously depressed a lot of, of my teenage years and I I made it and I just felt like I can't <laughs> I was so tra- I just felt so I felt so traumatized, I just felt like I couldn't it was a long time before. It sounds I could like go you back. felt
0: alone too
1: yeah because the you know we couldn't we didn't talk about it and like i was always the one in my family who was like let's talk about our feelings and let's talk about what happened you know and then still to this day like my you know i i start with that and everybody in my family rolls their eyes like <laughs> here she goes again with the you know with the telling me to go to a 12 step meeting like
0: can't she just lock her feelings down you know? like the rest of us
1: <laughs> no it's, i mean they all have they yeah. all have good ways of coping but this this you know way that i do it and i think that you do it as well it's not uh they're not into it yeah (laughs) let's just say that well you
0: know for me it's got to be the right group of people there's Mm -hmm. many people I would never share an ounce of vulnerability with because it just doesn't feel safe
1: exactly but you know I didn't I didn't know that when I was 18 all I knew the only way I could do it was to to separate at that time um so anyway so I was I was living in this apartment, and i had i i had had to take a semester off school because I was not able to function. It was just like it really came to a head in like my the middle of my uh sophomore year in college. I was just like i was in support groups and I had a therapist, but I was like just crying all the time I couldn't get out of bed I couldn't do my work, which was really atypical for me because I was uh, um always like an a student. And so that scared me. I I couldn't function. And so I took a semester off school. I lived in my boyfriend at the time's dorm room at Hampshire College. And probably scared the hell out of this poor child who was only like 19 or 20 himself. And I was a a wreck. (laughs) So anyway, so that was, that prefaced this, you know, evening. So
0: you were in that place before this happened.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. And so, okay. So, so I. You were like a
0: dry box of. (laughs) I know. Tinder.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. Those were rough years. Um, Okay. So, but all right. I worked a job. I was working. So I took a semester off. But my version of like collapsing was to work a full time job. That's what I did. Um, And I worked nights. I came home late and my boyfriend went to bed and I took a bath and. the funny part of this story is that I had a green I put a like a clay face mask on so all picture all while all of this is happening I have a green like incredible hulk face that on.
0: Is <laughs> that is awful-some. That is awfulsome. You know you is, know that word that that we is have not. Yes. Yeah.
1: The the police when they came I inter- the entire thing happened with green face on. Okay, so I'm in the bath and this I hear this like incredible crashing noise which we lived on the the ground floor of this apartment building and that was not uncommon because people would come through the front door and it would make a noise but i'm in the bath i hear the crashing and i was like you know probably my boyfriend would have said something if it were there were something actually wrong so i'm sure it's fine but then i hear a voice at the door and the the man it was a stranger he said get the you know come out of there right now or i'm going to fucking kill you or something like that something terrifying and threatening to you to me and my first thought what you know i've thought a lot about this obviously in the years since but my first my first thought was he must have hurt my boyfriend cuz there's no way that he- there would be a man outside the bathroom door threatening to kill me and my boyfriend would not be there <laughs> to protect me and so i thought i have to play along with this and do whatever it takes to make sure that he doesn't get hurt You know, so whatever I have to do, because I knew what, you know, I knew it was coming. Nobody, you know, a man doesn't come to your, into your apartment to say hello. I knew it was coming. But I said, I thought to myself, one, here we go again. And two, whatever this is, I'm going to have to get through it so that my boyfriend doesn't get hurt. And so I came out of the bathroom in a a towel with my green face on. And the man had a, um, his t-shirt pulled up over his head so they couldn't, see his face it was absurd really in retrospect because i think he was very drunk um kind of a bumbler but he was much bigger than me and um he was pretty scary and he like got me in a headlock and dragged me to the bedroom
0: and where was your boyfriend
1: in the bedroom sleeping and so the door the bath the the bedroom door was open i closed and i opened it and turned on the light and so he sat up in bed and saw me there with this guy, you know, with his, like, arms around my throat. And he was just, like, he didn't react. Like, he was, t- I mean, he was sleeping. And he was, you know, 20 and um, is human. But he didn't react. I said, call 911 to him. And he was, like, what? <laughs> and... The man, the assailant, uh, he did not feel like dealing with that situation. I think he was not prepared for whatever he thought was going to happen In his mind,
0: it had broke bad. (laughs) That's the one thing everybody could agree on in the room, is that this had broken bad.
1: (laughs) I'm getting away from this green-faced... Anyway, so he... He and he was drunk, and he was just like, "Fuck this! I'm gonna go find somebody else." And he dove out the window where he came in. And I went to the phone, and I called nine one one. And my boyfriend, the whole time, just was like, "What just happened?" <laughs> and then he had a um, he had um, plans to go visit a friend of his, a girl that I knew was in love with him because she had told him that you know, recently. He had plans to go visit her three days later and he went. He went on the trip and left me in that apartment where I had almost been raped. Wow. And I stayed with that motherfucker for another, like, two years.
0: You know, I gotta say, at 20, I'm not sure I would have been much more emotionally aware than, than he was. Yeah. And that's really hard to admit and I think...
1: Yeah, I, you know I
0: I'm not making excuses for him. No, I, maybe I, want, I am. No, I don't know I want you but
1: to, I, I want you to make excuses for him because the fact is that he really didn't do anything wrong. He was actually a one and probably still is a like a truly wonderful person who loved me and I loved him, but he didn't know what to do but but what I took from that situation. Was, I am not worth defending. Mm. And he, you know, I think that's, again, this is what makes it so difficult. He was not the villain in this situation. I can't even, even all this time later, I can't go back in and blame him. It just happened.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm talking about the, um, him going to visit the girl three days later. Oh. That part. Not the, there's a, a, a guy well, but with that, you in a headlock and you're naked that uh, that I can't understand well, unless he was, he's a really heavy sleeper and and he hadn't
1: well he must I mean he, he 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 was sleeping I don't think he was faking sleeping so you know but going going to see the other girl too that um again yeah like he he was tired the other that was the other thing like he had been dealing with me having this kind of breakdown for months and he was tired and yeah. and didn't have the energy to help me through another one. And, you know, he, um, that's okay. Like, that was what he was going through at that time. But the, the thing that strikes me about it now is the message that I took from it, which is, you know, and, and it wasn't just him. It was like, you know, I called my family members and friends to say this is what happened. And what they largely said was like, well, thank God nothing happened, you know. As, as like, if no
0: injury <laughs> happened. Yeah. Well, at least <laughs> yeah, at least.
1: You know, at least you didn't actually. At least you didn't actually get raped. And they're, of course, they're absolutely right. And and their response ca- comes to came to, I think, from fear for me and relief that it hadn't been worse. You know, so like the, I think this is the way that it plays out for everybody. Like it's complicated. People don't say or do the right things necessarily, but they don't.
0: It's not because they don't want to. They don't know how. They don't to. know what to they do. They don't. Most people don't. There, there's like an illiteracy of, yeah. uh, like a traumatic, a trauma, emotion, illiteracy in yeah, the world, our country, society, wh- whatever. It's just people don't talk about it. We don't know. It's funny we tell people how to do CPR and all this other mm-hmm. stuff, but we don't tell them, "Hey, here's how you know, the, you know that there's some type of trauma you're burying," or "Here's how." Right. You talk to somebody who comes to you and tells you that they're being molested or they've been raped or somebody's creeping them out or, uh, you know, whatever. We don't...
1: We don't have the training.
0: We don't have the training. And how do you do that? Is that the government's job? God (laughs) God knows what kind of a job they do. Yeah. Who who knows? It's... I I don't know.
1: I mean, but I think that what, you know, what is hard about that for the survivor of trauma is feeling like, you know, I felt like I was just really alone in it, like there was nobody that I could tell who would really, you know, know how to support me or how to take care of me. And then again, you know, the the, something that that I think is definitely true is that I became really afraid of my own feelings. And I selected people to be around me who were also afraid of my feelings. It's like I was hiring them to be like security guards around the perimeter. Like they – you know, if I stepped over the line and started to feel too much or want too much, they would check me. You know, like I can't handle that. Like back up. You know, that's too much or like, you know, you're being too needy or whatever it is that people say to get you to Mm -hmm. stop. I surrounded myself with people who would do that for me for a long time. And so my friendships, my relationships were um, with people that I loved deeply and who I think loved me, but who just couldn't handle it. Yeah. You know? And, and so it's not like, again, it's not like anybody is a villain or is doing something wrong. It's just, you know, I had to think about, about putting people in my life who really could handle it.
0: It, it sounds like these people thought that it was you were coming the, to them to be fixed. When in reality, you just wanted to feel felt and heard. Yeah, yeah. And you just wanted somebody to hug you and hold you and say, "Go ahead and cry." Yeah. I'm I'm here all night. I'm not going anywhere.
1: Yeah.
0: What do you want to eat? I'll, <laughs> I'll go pick some food up. Yeah. Let's watch something fun on TV, or let's watch something sad on TV and ball our, ball yeah. our eyes out.
1: Well, I, you know, I have been that person to many people. And um, that was, you know, that again is where like the resentment would come up for me. Like, I felt like I was always that person who, you know, when somebody would talk about their feelings for a little bit, and then try to change the subject, I would say, we're not done talking about this until we are done. Like, keep talking, I'm listening, you know, I, and I, I, I felt like I was giving that to people, but I wasn't receiving it. Of course, the flaw in that logic is like that I was not giving that to myself. And that's why I kept looking for it from, uh, from other people,
0: you know? Yeah. And while I think it's important to have appropriate people that can hear you and feel you and see you and, you know, use that phrase I hate, hold space. um, (laughs) Yeah, we do, we do have to begin to do the work that is involved in finding that compassion for ourselves and explore that, you know that answer those questions. Did I deserve this? Was this my fault? All mm-hmm. those things we beat ourselves up with that we would never say to somebody that came to us, Right. Um, but we say to ourselves. Right. You know, oh, you had an orgasm. You must have wanted it. Or look at the way you were dressed. Or you shouldn't have been out that late. Or why did you drink that much? That one breaks my heart. I see that in the survey all the time. Yeah. Women that that let their and men who let their um, abusers off the hook. Because they had too much to drink, right. as if if your blood alcohol content is such at such and such, then that's that bo- box is checked and you're now you're rapable.
1: But that is what people do. I mean, and that's what children do, and that's why trauma is so hard to recover from because I think the thing that we most want in the world is to not believe the thing that is the scariest is to think, Bad things happen randomly.
0: <laughs> yes. And that the world is as unsafe as it really is. Right.
1: Like we I would rather torment and punish myself for my whole life on the hope that I could just be better and it nothing bad will happen to me again. Mm. You know, like I like if you can go back to a rape situation and you can find this would be I mean, even like, you know, I do this all the time, even now, like something bad will happen and my mind will be racing about like, what could I have done to prevent that from having happened? It's like, that's, we want to feel like we have control yeah, and that we, we could, you know, and, and I think this is partly what makes it hard to support trauma too, because people will, will judge you because they fear what happened and they're afraid that it could happen to them. So it's like, you know, if some, if, if a woman tells you I went to a party and I was date raped. You know, your mind goes to like, well, if it were me, I would have been dressed differently. I would have had friends with me. I wouldn't have had so much to drink and then it wouldn't have happened to me. And that's a way of like defending yourself against the possibility that you could get hurt. Like we're so afraid of random hurt mm-hmm. that we will do anything to blame ourselves or somebody else.
0: We will we will call ourselves perverts rather than say, oh, we lived in a fucked up society full of dangerous people. Yeah.
1: Because I mean, because that is ter- truly terrifying. It's like, terrifying. To, like the hardest thing in the world is to walk down the street with your heart open, because anything could happen to you at any moment. Any number of people close to you, strangers, could hurt you. You could die. You could get physically or spiritually. Viol- at any moment, there is, you, there is fuck all that you can do. You are a, an a open wound, always. And
0: and you know, to that I would say, I like to picture myself is going through my daily life with walls that come up and down <laughs> in a way that that is efficient if, right. I, if i sense that somebody isn't safe my walls come up i can be polite with them i cut the conversation off it and a, you can at, decide a nice point. to it i can to do decide it. to do it i don't have to try to be something to that somebody um and I'm done and I'm and I'm on my way and if I find it somebody like you that I start having a conversation with I can let the walls come down yeah. and then I can let the love in I can let the love out and and that makes my day but yeah. but I don't I used to not be able to know who was safe and who wasn't cuz
1: so you would just have the wall up all the time, all the time, yeah. or
0: down all the time around the wrong people, right? And and I would just unload maybe on somebody that that didn't know how to handle it. You oh, know, right? When, yeah. When I first started confronting the the stuff that happened to me, um, I couldn't stop talking about it yeah. because I wanted, I wanted a mother, I wanted somebody to come in and fill that death.
1: But you also wanted to be smacked down to in some. Re- sense too don't you think it's like it's like I mean I feel like part of me wanted to I want I yes there's like this craving for intimacy and there's also this terror of it so it's like you know you're reaching out but I think part of you hopes that you will get you will get smacked down so that then you can you can stop the feelings and you don't have to actually really feel them through to their conclusion because they're so painful and difficult I didn't you experience
0: know? that What 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 I experienced was asking the same question over and over again hoping that eventually the answer would sink into my bones.
1: What that, question?
0: Am I making this up or was this sexual abuse? Yeah. What happened to me? And and I, I, I hate think that it, question. It's it's awful because it's they weren't there. The yeah. person you're asked you can only give them the details of it and then when you share the details of it with them you begin to get triggered yeah. again and I could feel my adrenaline starting to rush. And part of it would be um, um, arousing and part of it would be, it was this really, this mixed bowl of spaghetti of, um, and when I talked to my therapist about that, I said, my shame has gone from, my shame is no longer on what happened to me. My shame is now how I feel when I talk about it, that I get aroused sometimes talking um, about it how the fuck could i be getting aroused talking about something that hurt me more deeply than anything else and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's so fucked up about trauma how can you have an orgasm when you're being raped how can you yeah. um masturbate um thinking about somebody doing something that hurt you
1: yeah
0: that's i guess, suppose that's why we do the podcast is because there are no simple answers right. to it it you can't talk about it in a 5 minute chunk you need hours to talk about it. You need support groups. You yeah. need therapists. You need close friends. I mean, what, what, what I just shared with you what, do you, what do you think? Be my mom for <laughs> a second. Be not my actual mom, but be... Um,
1: I think you have to treat the symptoms, you know, and that's really something that I've learned in my, in my therapy is that like you, one way to shut down your recovery process is to keep putting yourself on trial and asking whether you deserve it. Like, whether it was bad enough or real enough for you to claim it. And that's, you can't, You, you that's just a circle, the little circle that you'll keep chasing your tail Because in. you will
0: always come up with a reason to put yeah. yourself down to say this wasn't valid enough.
1: Exactly. But I mean, if you, you know, you know yourself, you're not, a, you're not crazy. You, if you are having like symptoms of, of being a sexual abuse survivor, you know, um, Difficulty with intimacy or, like, flashbacks. I had, that was a big thing for me, post-traumatic stress flashbacks during sex. Um, From the
0: childhood stuff or the the second thing?
1: The, the childhood stuff. Yeah. Um, it's like, you you know, you... Were these if repressed
0: it, memories or just um, things that you knew had happened but they were just coming back?
1: It wasn't, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's like combat. It's like it's. I would just feel like I was being raped. Like I would be having sex with somebody that I loved and I would get triggered anyway. It would feel like I was being raped. And it was not even like verbal. It was just like a physical kind of panic. Um,
0: I, I experienced that, by yeah. the way, in my 20s with having sex with my wife. I wouldn't experience it before that with one night stands. It was the opposite of that. But once I got into a committed relationship
1: it's a lot scarier especially
0: when she would be on top Mm -hmm. um i would want to crawl out of my skin and i didn't know why and i had never been quote unquote raped i'd been sexually abused but i'd never had that act but it it i said to her once i said when we you know do such and such i i feel like i was raped and it really hurt her feelings and i felt terrible for saying that but i didn't know at that point that 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 I didn't know until a year ago that that's what that, that yeah. that's what that was.
1: I'm so I mean I'm sorry that you've had to go through it.
0: Well right, right
1: back at <laughs> you.
0: But it's so confusing. It's very confusing. It's so confusing and it takes um but I'm so glad that I can connect to somebody about it now and begin to understand and begin to go, oh, I'm not just weird.
1: Well, maybe you're weird, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's just... okay. <laughs>
0: I am Let's not take
1: that off the table. So Um No, I mean I think I think the best thing you can do is just observe it and not judge it. Like you're doing. You know, like this is happening. Let me try to understand it. Let me try to get the support I need around it and um and just stop trying to litigate it in your mind. I'm
0: actually judging myself right now because I feel like I talk about it too much, but it's really important to me.
1: But that is hard too. like, I feel like I've described this before as like walking on a waterbed. It's a little sloppy. It's like, you know, like you said earlier, like sort of oversharing with the wrong people sometimes or at the wrong time, like in the, in the, in the, Because there's this like starvation for, you know, it's like, and I, like I, I don't have complete control over who I'm talking about this with and how I'm talking about it. I, I sometimes don't manage the boundaries well. And that's... You overshare? Yeah. I mean...
0: Thank God. Yeah. That makes me feel so much better. Yeah.
1: I mean, less, I think is particularly in the first couple of years of it. I was, I would be like, I would be telling the story to somebody that I knew would not be able to hear it. And then I would just wait for them to like, I don't really think that happened. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I think you're kind of making a big deal out of it, don't you think? And like that sort of thing that people say, but like I knew, I knew that I wasn't going to get what I needed. And I also, you know, I think this is the thing with depression too, like the modulation of intimacy, because there's this, and with sex, there's this incredible craving a starvation for closeness but not really knowing how to manage it right so there's like
0: and almost having a fantastical idea of what form that's going to to appear in right like a preconceived notion and very rarely does intimacy or whatever it is that we think is going to fill us rarely does it ever come in that form
1: that you can control. That and you can like, control. Yeah. Right.
0: Because by its very definition, intimacy yeah. and vulnerability are not on your you terms. Have,
1: exactly. But, you know, but it's that, that wall, too, like that you were talking about. Like, I, I feel like I had this kind of plexiglass wall up all the time. One thing, another thing that really helped me about being a parent is that my older son has um, sensory modulation issues from very young age, like when he was a toddler. And so he, like, he would... Um, this helped me understand myself in a way that was really profound. Like, he he could not handle loud noises, and he didn't like people to be very close to him. Like, a, the playground was very stressful. It was just, like, too much stimulation. So he was just, like, on guard, like tense all the time, like, hypervigilant against this stimulation. At the same time, though, he was fucking starving for contact so he would hug you and he would like knock you to the ground he would like try to play with the kid but he'd end up like beating the shit out of them like he just <laughs> yeah. he just would he would defend himself against stimulation and then he would be sensory seeking so he would like drive you know in in a way that like guaranteed that he wasn't going to get it because the other person would be completely overwhelmed wow that
0: is so analogous to totally. trauma survivors
1: totally absolutely and it was interesting to see because I know he hasn't experienced a trauma. It was interesting to see that being just sort of like a natural. And it made me wonder too like, did I come into my, whatever my family situation was, with a kind of like genetic predisposition to manage things in this particular way? You know, anyway, he, um, he learned to modulate, but it was like a skill set that he had to, had to be taught and still has to be taught, like trying to, to balance between. Protecting himself against closeness and f- trying to force the closeness when it wasn't appropriate to do to do so. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you ever pin around a kid who's just like up in your face, like you just get too close to your face. Mm-hmm. That's what I was doing with the sexual abuse stuff. <laughs> I would not talk about it, and then I would just, I would just blah, you know, like bl- throw it up all over somebody and expect them to deal with it, and they couldn't. And yeah. then I would be like, I knew it nobody can deal with this i'm a piece of shit you know this is too shameful that's why and it's it's
0: and, and the the shame after you share with somebody and you feel like oh they didn't th- oh, that awful. was a mistake it's awful it's re it's it's, it's a re- re-shaming yeah. it's a new kind of shame and then it's like oh now that person knows that about me right and then you feel exposed
1: or they know it about me or they think that I'm making it up mm-hmm. and now I'm that person I'm that person who's like a drama seeker do you know
0: did you when you would share it with somebody and you would get a neg- negative reaction from them would it be that you th- you thought that they thought you were exaggerating or you were just making the entire thing up or you were making too big big of a deal of something that wasn't a big deal.
1: Oh, all of that. I got all of those kinds of responses.
0: Who were who you going to? <laughs>
1: Good people. Yeah. Loving people. Yes.
0: Wow. And how old were you when you were going to them with this?
1: I mean, I started trying like when I was a teenager and it was all right up, right up through, you know, up until like a couple of years ago when I really kind of became more settled about this. You know, I went, I went, um... I have a really wonderful therapist now, and she saw my husband and me for marriage counseling for a year, and then I started to see her individually. And um, she, for whatever reason, I think I was ready, and she just is really good. And I've been, I've made a lot of progress on this in the last like five years or so. So now I feel, I don't feel compelled to tell the story all the time. I feel settled about it.
0: I'm beginning to feel that now at about two and about two years into confronting it i'm beginning to feel like i don't feel the need when i feel that maternal feeling from a woman who's open and i know will understand me i'm beginning to not feel that like i have to vomit yeah. this pain so that she can metaphorically cradle me and. Yeah see me and feel me and all that. And I hate myself for having just said that because I feel like a fucking new age.
1: Um, I'm glad you said it. I just feel, I just it.
0: feel, know uh, it just, it makes me feel so unmasculine. It makes yeah. me feel so, um, oh, there's so many levels to my, to my shame. And it's a thousand times less than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But there, my shame around that stuff, that uh, those events is so multifaceted, and there's always some new thing to feel yeah. shame about. It's like the it's like the horrible <laughs> Christmas that never ends.
1: It just keeps on giving. It
0: just keeps on giving, and I'm sorry that I'm and now I'm feeling shame that I'm talking about myself about this so much. But you know that feeling when it How comes. up.
1: you are when
0: it comes up. It needs to come up. Yeah. When it comes up, and I'm trying to not judge it, but it's. I haven't talked about it in a while.
1: Yeah.
0: And you feel like a really appropriate person to to talk about this Go with. Go for it. And no, well, I just I just said what I had to say, but I, like 2 or 3 minutes ago I was like I wanted to cry. I like mm-hmm. I could feel my eyes starting to to well up and it's like I wanted to reach across the the table and say can you hug me? Can you just <laughs> I'll uh, hug, you hug me right now? <laughs> um
1: I will tell you I I like I said I have two sons and I will tell you as an objective mother of them that if anything ever happened to them, I would want them to talk about it over and over and over again, however much they needed to. I would want them to be embraced by a mother. I would want them to get that love and support. I There is nothing to me unmasculine about a desire to be heard and loved and to to, you know, be able to share your pain and and he and heal in the presence of a witness who loves you. So you know, I get it that there that it's hard, particularly for a man to talk about this stuff. But I hope that you and and, I'm, and I see that you do it, and I'm 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 impressed with you that you can do oh, it.
0: That's nice. I feel like I've I've come a long way. But l- let's get back to your. Um... Let's get back to your fucking crazy, (laughs) fucking, fucking nut job.
1: A little too. Let's get
0: back to your personal (laughs) weaknesses.
1: I've got more. I've got more to offer. Um, How has,
0: how has, what has happened to you? And and if you don't feel comfortable discussing this, we we can go in another direction. But how has it affected your sexuality? If I am not comfortable
1: talking about it, but I. But I would like to be more comfortable talking about it. And I think that being a romance writer has kind of, you know, it's been a way to make myself be more forthright about sex and about my sexuality. Um, And that's been a really good thing for me because it still was something, you know, that I felt just kind of embarrassed about and shy and ashamed. Not, you know... (sighs) Just your typical good girls don't do it kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I will say that that the first time I had sex with a peer. Um,
0: what does that mean? Oh, non-abuse. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, um, so I got you. Was um, consensual sex? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> was with? Um, I was sixteen, and it was a I, my boyfriend was. Uh, Canadian. He had been my pen pal, like mm-hmm. through school for a couple of years. We were writing to each other. He was a really sweet guy. He came to visit me in New York, and like our first kiss and the first time we had sex was like four hours apart. Like I had no, I could not handle the anticipation of like we're probably going to have sex at some point. Can we just do it like within the first twenty five seconds of meeting each other to get it out of the way? So like it wasn't. That-
0: it wasn't because you wanted to. To have sex, it was. I mean,
1: I did. I, I was very. I will say, I have been lucky in having very generous, loving partners. I met my husband when I was 22, so this is a long time ago. He is amazing. But even before him, you know, I had, um, I had good sexual partners who were who were um, thoughtful. <laughs> um, so I wanted to. I loved this boy, but it was I. I rushed us because I just couldn't, I couldn't, it was so stressful for me, just like wondering how it was going to happen. It, it made me, um, I wouldn't say aggressive, but just kind of like, let's get it over with, you know? And I did, you know, that first time was a disaster. I mean, I ran out of the room and I think I like hid in the, I was like sobbing in the bathtub, like no, naked in the bathtub. No. <laughs> It was bad, and he, you know, it was hard for him, too, but it was like it was too soon. You know, we were just, we were not old enough, and we hadn't known each other long enough, and...
0: Did you feel that the, what it, whatever it was that made you cry and break down, did you feel that during the act or only after the act? It was during, too. Yeah, but you
1: but that my, held on for the, was like, for the oh, good of the team Yeah, exactly i mean that the number of times i've held on for the good of the team really like just because it's just like oh if i can just get through this it will be easier than having to deal with having a conversation about how i'm having a flashback and so it was always like a race against time like to try to get the guy to finish before he re- realized that i was not in the room anymore Aww. you know what i mean that happened a lot of times is that
0: healthy to do that
1: um, no, that's not healthy to do that. I mean, because it really, because then I felt, it May I made these people that I loved and who loved me, per, I didn't make them, but it had the effect of making it feel like it was happening again and they were participating in it, you know? Like, I, that was... I had to do a lot of work to get okay with sex, really. Like, to be able to have sex without flashbacks, really. I had to do a lot of years of work. Hypnosis, a lot of therapy. What
0: worked the best for you?
1: Um, hypnosis was really helpful. Because mm-hmm. a lot of it is just, like, I think my, you know, your brain wiring. You know, you get in these certain grooves, like a, um, something will trigger you. Like, after 9-11, like the one of the therapies was you know, having people just walk through Wall Street, like walk downtown and have nothing happen to them a bunch of times so they could kind of reprogram Mm. their brains to see that, like, terrible things wouldn't always happen when they were there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, I I think a lot, it's, this is, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like, let me, you, you have certain neural pathways that develop around trauma, and you have to rewire your brain so that you're not triggered into that trauma all the time. And so... Um, you know, I've done a lot of things. One weird thing that I did was running a marathon and I'm actually a really bad runner, like a very slow runner. And I have, um, I didn't realize this at the time, but I have, um, herniated disc, which was causing sciatica. So I had like really excruciating pain when I was running and like I started and I, I had, this is gross. You are a determined person. I was. I am a determined person. I also, when I was training, I started getting diarrhea, like, every three miles. So I would be, like, (laughs) sick and (laughs) sobbing because I was hurt, uh, so much pain.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And it was fucked up in a way because it was, like, I wasn't listening to my body to say, like, you don't have to suffer like this. You could stop training. You don't have to run the marathon. You know, that wasn't good. But the reason why I did it was because I didn't want to be triggered by pain. I wanted to be able to feel physical pain and, you know, I ran the Philadelphia marathon and I, I, I did all my training with, um, headphones on. So like I never, I was sort of in my own world, like listening to Eminem, like running and crying. But during the actual marathon, I kept my headphones out and I really like just paid attention to the people who were there cheering. And it was really, it was, that was like a rewiring experience for me because I was hurting And I was scared, and I was surrounded by people who were like, "Listen to this." I was like a mile 19, and I had—I was walking because I couldn't run. So this
0: would have been between your sixth and seventh shit.
1: (laughs) I figured out a solution before now, though. Although although I got my period too during that race, I just want you to know that happened as well during the marathon. I hope you
0: threw your shorts out.
1: (laughs) just ran naked the rest of the time. Anyway, no. Okay. So it was horrible. It, like in every... It was physically and emotionally horrible. But I was on mile 19. I'm walking up this hill. And, you know, you wear a bib that says your name. And there was this woman. I wish I could find her. I never will. But if she, I, I wish I could. Maybe she will know just from the power of my gratitude. But she... She was there and there weren't a lot of spectators there. And I came up the hill. It was just me and her. And she said, I see you, Rebecca. And I wow. was like, oh, I mean, sobbing. I see you. Like, I see what you're going through right now. Wow. Powerful, right? But the thing is, I, my heart was open to that. And it was, it was so important for me to be able to absorb the love of somebody even a strange like a stranger like it was so important for me to my husband was really amazing during that race too like i was just broken down in so many different ways but i was like i'm going to do this with my heart open and once i was able to do that i was able to do it again
0: and there's something so beautiful about something like that coming from somebody that has no vested interest in line to you. That that stuff often hits me way deeper than yeah. something that my wife might say because my sick brain will tell me she's just trying to get you in a better mood because she's sick of living with your depression.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: That is beautiful. My uh, God.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I think if you can do it with,
0: The second half of her sentence was, "I see you, and you're never going to catch me." And then she palmed you right in the face and sprinted.
1: No, she wasn't a runner. She was just a um, just a a spectator. Wow, she was just there to cheer people. That was her job that day to make people feel good. It was beautiful. Wow. But I think you know to be able to let somebody in like that is a habit that I didn't hadn't learned, and I you know in terms of like how. I think your original question was, how has it affected my sex life? I feel like it's been, you know, not something that I could solve just in the bedroom. I had to solve it in these other kind of emotional ways too. And that was learning the habit, which I'm still trying to do, but learning the habit of letting people love me.
0: I feel like the bedroom is the last place you can begin to solve your sexuality Mm. when it's when it's been skewed, yeah. when it's been skewed by trauma, yeah. uh, I feel like it, it. I'm sure work can take place there, but for me, I've. It's always been outside of it. It's been close conversations with people. That's been the, That's why I, I, I'm on my soapbox about support groups. Is yeah. it has been hands down the most healing, healing. It's why yeah. I started this podcast. There's nothing like talking to a peer who's lived your experience. Nothing.
1: And hearing somebody else tell a story that you will deny yourself. But yes. you can you know?
0: But you will encourage them. You, you will you believe hear, them.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, the more you hear those kinds of stories where it's, like, it's, it it helps un- to undo the mind fuck, you know, of, like, the, when you... Like, I was talking about earlier, that choice between, like, I'm either alone or the world is... I'm alone but sane. Or I'm... You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, it helps you find this community that will allow you to have a truth to have to tell the truth but still have that be witnessed and supported it makes you know
0: yeah and and it's not something where every box has to be checked and then it's valid mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't really matter because again it's this isn't about prosecuting somebody this is about giving credence and weight to what we feel and what we feel is all that matters for how we're going to go about dealing with it
1: right because it's never going to be a black and white situation never and you know you can have you know all of these things can be true simultaneously the person who hurt you could have not meant it they could have not they could have they could have been a good person, and not just sexual abuse, but any t- type of hurt. You know, They, they might could, have been
0: having a bad day. They might be a, somebody who helped your life in so many other ways.
1: Exactly. They could be, right, they could be somebody that you love and who loved you, and they still hurt you. And all of that is, is true at once. You know, and it's, it's, that's, that's hard, but I think it's very liberating to come to try to accept that things are that complicated. You know, like I, I was a little bit to blame and I was not, not in terms, I don't think that I want to be clear. I don't think that children are ever to blame for sexual abuse, but, but, you know, there you can, you're still entitled to have a, to have the trauma and to have feelings about it and to be hurt. Even if the situation was murky, in fact, the situation is always going to be murky and, and
0: and most predators will make sure that it's murky in my in my opinion yeah from what from what i've experienced and what i've read that's a part of the grooming process is to plant that seed of doubt in that in that person's in the in the victim's mind and i think to also help the predator live with themselves
1: exactly but because they don't i mean they'll every anybody can justify anything to themselves you know and they Yeah. I think, you know, even, I guess, I guess even the word predator is, um, I worry about that word, because I feel like it's difficult to That even makes it kind of black, black and white in a way no, that I'm. Not, right. You know what I mean? You're it's right. like there, there, the. I don't know if I. I don't know. if the, This is a semantic thing, but maybe perpetrator like that. Yeah. The,
0: no, I I know what you're saying because in in there are instances where it it was innocent on the part of the of the person um, or certainly didn't have the weight behind it that the person who experienced it felt. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It. It. I know what you're saying.
1: I don't. I mean, what would be a, what would
0: be a word to to say it to 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 call it the?
1: I think perpetrator. Although I feel like I'm not being clear here, and that even just,
0: sounds harsh if it's something that is really truly in that gray area.
1: But even if it's. <laughs> even if it's not in a gray area i mean i think i think sexual abuse is a crime regardless of what that person's intentions were mm-hmm. and even if they you know d- they didn't mean it it's still a crime so i want to be clear about that how about
0: that. the aroused
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that could be you know
0: could be both yeah could be Kinda. both
1: it's just i i feel like i just want it's important it was important for me to just separate out the um to honor what my experience was and not try to make it a black and white type of situation. And I think an important thing for sexual abuse survivors to just hear is that people who abuse us can be people that we love and who are in other ways good people.
0: That's one of the reasons on the Shame and Secret survey why I added the question are there any positive experiences you've had with your abuser because that was the, one of the things that made it so hard for me to heal was there were positive things.
1: And then you feel like um complicit. Like if I love and then then it's then it's not just the perpetrator that I can't trust it's myself I can't trust because I will I loved somebody who hurt me. Mm-hmm. So again it's like the, it's that pendulum like I am the I am so fucked up that I loved this person who hurt me, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think that's the part, of, that's the shame that I want to take away, that it's like, it's okay for you to love. It's okay for you to have loved. Yeah.
0: Or get rid of the idea that it's that it's uh, a math problem where you're going <laughs> to yeah. add up the positive and the negatives, and only if the negatives outweigh the positives can you say this was abuse. Exactly. You know, it could be 99% that person was awesome, but 1% of it was incredibly traumatic to you well just give give weight to that 1% and deal with that and forget about the the equation and you may get to a, back to a place where you can go to that person and and say hey you really hurt me and who knows maybe you have a salvageable relationship maybe not but get rid of the math equation because that's what i tortured myself with for a year and a half was yeah. feeling like you know it's it has to there has to be more negative than positive for me to sum up.
1: But don't you think this is what leads to problems with intimacy? Because it's like, you know, I can't trust myself to, to love. I mean, that was really, and I think this is, again, partly what drew, drew me to romance to really kind of explore the question of love you know and how fucked up it is and complicated it is because i felt like i can't i cannot trust myself mm. i will love people who hurt me and i can't i i can't and because i felt like i had to always kind of hold myself back i was and this is i think this is how it links for me to depression and this is something that my therapist really helped me to see, which was for whatever reason, really revelatory to me that she said she thinks, uh, because when I wrote the bridge, that was the last, the most recent depression episode. And mm-hmm. it was really scary. It was really bad. And it was, it hadn't happened for a while and it freaked me out because of how, um, how bad I felt. Give, you me, know? give
0: me a snapshot of it at its worst.
1: Well, I'm writing this book about these two people who.
0: Both suffer from depression, both have suicidal well, the, tendencies.
1: The hero, um, it's more of a kind of clinical, chemical issue for him. The heroine um, uh, is a breast cancer survivor who just found out she has cancer in her remaining breast and she just can't go through um, it she again. She can't go through it again. So that's. Um, So I wanted to kind of look at, you know, sort of chemical depression versus um, environmental, for lack of a better word, you know, Um, situational. And to see how those two people worked on it separately, differently. Um, But just like writing about it. So I would write these scenes and then like sobbing. And then I would, I I could probably, I wrote like maybe one sentence at a time. And then I would have to. Just put my the blanket over my head and cry and cry. Just And I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody. That's what scared me. Like I couldn't tell anybody how bad it was. I couldn't. Um, I just was like. Were you not
0: going to therapy at that time?
1: I was.
0: Why couldn't you talk to your therapist?
1: I did. But it wasn't enough.
0: Oh, you couldn't talk to people outside of mm-hmm. your therapy? Were, you, were Had you slacked off on your support even group? even
1: with therapy. Even with. Um, no, I was going to. I was going to a support group at that time. I just, it was, I, I, it, this is the thing that I've always done with therapy. Like, I can, I can talk as though I am undergoing therapy when in fact I am a hundred miles, you know what I mean? Away. Like, I don't know if you ever do that. Like, I, I've been doing it for so long. I know how to sound like somebody who's working on the problem, so like I could look at I could say i'm I am experiencing depression right now, and I could describe it and talk about it and say I should probably do X, y, and Z, but I would never do those things. I would just because I want to be an A student at therapy, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know so i often, i I have to um I have to be careful about that like i i I can fake it without really actually doing. The work
0: do you find what I experience sometimes is I can't find the words to express what it is that I'm feeling it's so
1: well it's so stupid in a way too it's like I'm I can't believe I'm going this is like this is like the most you know pathetic textbook bullshit like i should be i would get i get like frustrated with myself like i'm supposed to be past this i thought i was over this
0: and that's such a terrible thing to tell yourself yeah imposing a timeline yeah and an idea of how you think you're supposed to recover is one of the meanest things you can do to yourself absolutely i wish that that's another thing i wish they would tell kids is it's it's going to be a spiral not a straight line. Yeah. And sometimes it's w- one step back, two steps, sometimes it's two steps back and one step forward and one step to the side.
1: And you that, have to be patient with yourself. Yeah,
0: you there is no perfect way yeah. to to heal from from trauma.
1: But you know what sort of helped me through that episode faster than the previous times I had experienced depression. The one prior to that was um postpartum. That one was a scary one because I was like I had my older son here and my baby, nursing my baby, and I would just be sitting on the floor nursing, like, cry, like tears pouring down my face and just like, how can I die without hurting these children? <laughs> like, how can I get away with dying without scarring them? And I just was like, I, that's all I would think you about all day. You just felt trapped. Day. Yeah. Um, so did your, ha- did
0: your baby feel foreign to you?
1: No. And uh, that was uh, lo- described a lot I know, by women. I know that that ha- I know that that happens and I do, I do think that that is a randomly assigned shit sandwich like nobody
0: <laughs> it's got to be terrible. And it it's, is
1: horrible. Especially
0: then when you go to the park and you're surrounded by women who are like, "Isn't this
1: wonderful?" I know. Yeah. Well, I will say though I um I loved my children immediately and that that is a blessing I feel like just happened. It's not like I was any it just happened. So that it was how night.
0: you felt about yourself.
1: Yeah. And it I, I, I it was hard for me to be home with them. I was home with them in the first couple of years mm-hmm. full time and that was really it was I underestimated how grueling and difficult it was going to be. So okay, yes. I
0: can't imagine.
1: Um but I did I did feel bonded to them, thank God. That helped me. You know, that helped mm-hmm. me kind of claw my way out. But the so the thing in the in the when I was writing the book, the thing that helped that passed more quickly is that my therapist said she felt like I don't know if she used this analogy or if it was the way that I thought about it but it was like in terms of intimacy I was never eating enough I was always hungry so it was like I would be I would be I'd be surrounded by people like I'm married to somebody I have friends I have family relationships but I would be I I had the wall up and so like I was only getting like a little bit all Dep- the time. Depression
0: does that. It makes but, it so hard.
1: But but she connected it. She drew a direct line between that like constant low-level starvation and depression because she said when I get to a place where I'm low, I have no reserves. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing stored because I haven't been absorbing connection all the while. So, because I was like, why does this keep happening to me? Like, it's a cyclical thing. Like, am I, this is just going to be, like, every once in a while, I'm going to get hit by this Mack truck. There's nothing I can do. It's just a chemical issue. And she said she thinks not. She felt like it was, you know, if I work on my ability to connect and feel true intimacy with people, that I won't experience depression as Even if it feels
0: false when you initiate it.
1: The intimacy? Yeah. Because
0: um, doesn't it feel when you know that you're supposed to connect to somebody but you just want to isolate? Doesn't it initially feel like like when somebody calls me and I'm in that place where I just want to shut the world out, yeah, it feels like it weighs 500 pounds to pick the phone up. And even if oh, it's yeah. somebody I love, yeah, and I think we have to fight through that and not predict what, how we think it's gonna unfurl, just like our recovery.
1: Right. And I mean, there's like for me, I had to do physical stuff like to prepare myself for that conversation. Because, you know, a thing I'm sure you found this, the dissociation that happens when you have a sexual abuse history. Like I spend a lot of time on the ceiling Mm -hmm. and I have to pull myself down into my body. It's like my body. Like I always thought of myself. I described it as like being a brain on a stick and I would just carry the stick around, you know. Um, But you cannot be intimate and connect with somebody when you are not in your body. (laughs) No, It's just, it's play acting. It's going through the motions, but you're not really feeling it. And that's what I was doing. I was like, you know, seeking these connections with people, but I wasn't really there. And so a lot of the work that I've had to do is just like getting my body prepared to be close to somebody. And that's like, it's stupid stuff. It's like, you know, I have to breathe deeply. I have to like, you know, you you listeners won't be able to see this, but like you know, I would be in therapy with my husband, and we would be talking, and I would be like like this, you know, like your turned body turned away, and just like my legs folded and my shoulders hunched, and she would like. Make me face him, put both feet on the floor, like shoulders back. Don't look cross at your him. arms in front
0: of your chest.
1: I mean, it's just it's this stupid like structural stuff. I had to train my body, and then I had to breathe down into my feet so that I was like f- em- physically and emotionally present for that moment of closeness so that I could absorb it. Descri-
0: and- describe what you felt when you put your feet on the gr- on the. Floor oh, and faced it. Did you I hated feel like I, I would?
1: Like I was covered in ants.
0: Yeah, like, almost like you're naked and somebody's gonna come up and pinch you or uh-huh. or or punch you. Like
1: just, I hated yeah. it. But you know, you it, she argued very persuasively, and this has turned out to be true for me that I needed to learn how to tolerate it, and that if I just stuck with it, it would not be painful after a while and that has turned out kind to be kind of like true. those people
0: walking through Wall Street
1: <laughs> yes. you know seriously that's exactly what it is it's retrain it's training like yes it's rewiring the the part the pathways in my brain that were that were built according to tra- trauma
0: and that's probably what your body felt like before you were traumatized mm-hmm. that you could be that kid with that posture mm-hmm. that relaxed open posture
1: mm-hmm. and i can and just knowing that like and this was you know the I also um, – I, I I, won't tell a long story, but briefly, I had a very traumatic birth with my first son. It was a very medical – I s- described it at the time like, oh, ha-ha, it was like being gang-raped. I love to tell the story about how I would, felt like I was gang-raped during my son's birth. How so? Because it was it – was, you know I was induced I had gestational diabetes, and there was some fear that the baby was going to be too big. I was induced, which you know you, my body was not ready and i I had like incredible um incredibly painful labor, and then I was given an epidural um and then because at the at at the last minute you know when you're about you when you have to push transition. Typically, they'll leave the epidural on during that process, but my doctor was concerned that um, I wouldn't be able – the baby was so big I wouldn't be able to push effectively, so he shut off the epidural right as I went into transition. So I went from feeling nothing to feeling like the most – Horrific pain, you can imagine. And my baby was facing the wrong way, so they had to turn him. So it was two hours of that. And in order to get me through, I was screaming. I was screaming. So they had to bring in like all the nurses in the, in the, to like, and they were, they were, you know, they were like holding me down, like holding my legs open.
0: Yeah.
1: And my husband, You know, just did what the doctor told him, which is like hold her. And I was like, my husband is holding my legs open while this is happening. It was it was really really traumatic. And afterwards, I couldn't, I couldn't even hold my son, which was horrible for me because I, you know, I couldn't hold him for two hours. I was shaking like, like um, like a fox that had been hunted. You know, I was like, I was trembling so hard I couldn't hold him without dropping him for two hours. And so, and it was like. I don't remember what started this. <laughs> that that experience was really scary and traumatic, and it felt like a re-injury to me. And so I said, I'm going to, my second birth is going to be different. You know, I'm not going to go through that again. And I had a midwife and a doula, and I did. What's a doula? A doula is a... It's a
0: tiny guitar from Italy, yeah. <laughs> right?
1: A doula is like the... People who are doulas are... are They've got some kind of special like beautiful light in them. In my experience, they they are basically birth assistants. How do you spell doula? It's D O U L A. Okay. Um so I had a really wonderful um doula and a and a midwife who, you know, every time I would go for my my OBGYN appointments during my pregnancy, I would cry like um that's what started like the the real intensive work with the sexual abuse like the, in the last couple of years because I had a, a medical, uh, a gynecological procedure and I had a flashback on the table and was like screaming. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep acting like this isn't happening, you know. Um, So they knew that going in and they knew my history and they just, you know, it was like, it was I was so loved and so just like honored and taken care of during that that birth. I did it without any pain medication. My son was over nine pounds. I delivered him standing up. I caught him myself. <laughs> wow! It's fucking amazing. I mean, it was um a really amazing, an amazing experience. And it was like a reclaiming. It was like I'm I'm going to do it this again, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to fix it, (laughs) you know, like I'm going to, um, heal this. And, but for me, it's always been like, I can't just tell myself to do it. I have to give myself these, like, (laughs) these, like, object lessons. I have to do something as a way of learning it. And I don't know if that makes sense. It's happened a number of times in my life where I've had to, like, if there's some kind of emotional shift that I need to make, I have mm-hmm. to have some kind of action around it. Like yeah. one year I gave up worrying for Lent and that's like a really ridiculous thing to do, but it totally worked for me because for 40 days, every time I fe- felt anxiety, I meditated for 40 days. Mm. And at the end of that time, I wasn't, it it changed. It was, uh, it was, it worked, <laughs> you know? I don't remember what the original question was but I think I think
0: the original question was what was your childhood like <laughs> it, was, it was about an hour and a half ago
1: where Where would be the best place to start Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we uh, we wrap up
1: um, no I don't think so
0: we've covered a lot
1: we have covered a lot. Yeah. I feel like we were. Go- I felt like we were supposed to talk about sex more. We didn't talk about. Actual I felt sex. like we
0: talked about sex too much.
1: Oh really? But the no. Good I part's... felt.
0: I felt like we. I, yes. I felt like we. We talked about sexual trauma too much, but that's me judging myself. That we, shame I talked about about talking about it. How it went from feeling shame around the event
1: yeah. to
0: feeling shame about talking about it too much. Like I'm like I'm being exploitive.
1: I feel that way too
0: when you talk about it.
1: I feel that way about this conversation, which is um that's not right that we should feel that way. It was okay that we talked about it this much, right?
0: Yeah. Um it is. I I feel like um
1: it's I feel like a very exposed right now. Yeah. But do you?
0: It's not that I feel exposed, it's I feel um Like, I don't know where the truth is. Like, am I being, is this, is this wallowing in, is this me wallowing in my story too much? Is this me being like the National Enquirer about your stuff? And I know that that's a huge cartoony way of describing it, but our brain sometimes has a way of blowing things up into a cartoon, um... Or at but least really, my mine does.
1: Why should we feel that way? You know, it's like you should be able. We should. I, I think mean,
0: because I get triggered yeah. by it sometimes, yeah. and there, because that fantasy that I was left with when I share it with a woman who feels safe, I do get a little triggered because I, I fantasize about. Um that situation with her i get flashes in my brain about um engaging that fantasy with her and i hope it's not too much to lay at your at your feet but that and then i feel shame about it like you fucking pervert how are you how are you thinking about that while this person is talking while you're talking about this subject that is so serious but that's one of that's how my brain
1: but that's how i mean really we are filthy disgusting creatures (laughs) i mean you might as well accept it it just is it's not good i mean again it's neither good nor bad it just is and i think you have to uh, i am telling this to myself too so that i leave here feeling like Mm -hmm. you know um good about this conversation because I also feel like it was this kind of, like, move on already. Like, why am I still talking about this? It's just, you know, I feel lame.
0: I feel like your healing is noble and my healing is creepy. (laughs) That's it. That's
1: it. I feel the opposite way. I'm the creepy one and you're the noble one. Really? Yes. How? How? Because I should shut up already, I mean you you would whatever you experienced, I know that you really experienced it, and you are hurting, and I want to you know support that and witness it and um and honor it, but for me, I feel like I'm just like a whiny little oh my God, you know- <laughs> that's how I feel <laughs> well, okay that's That must be how people feel when they talk about sexual abuse. Can we that's, agree that we' both up.
0: can we agree that we're both whining babies?
1: Yes, we are both That's the final answer. We're both anybody who talks about this
0: is a whining baby <laughs> and need they, to they buck up
1: just shut up already yeah. that's what we sh- that's the lesson and go either be Good a night, jig- folks. go
0: be a gigolo or a stripper and get over it
1: <laughs> No, that is not no. I okay so I am going to decide that it's okay that we talked about this and it's okay for me I can I can talk about it for the rest of my life that's okay for me to do that right Do you yeah. agree Yeah Okay <sighs> I think it's a really you know part of it is like when you get around somebody who has a similar experience it's such a relief to talk about it frankly that you just want to Yeah
0: For me it's like I've been slightly cold and it's like I'm in a jacuzzi that's just the perfect temperature and I don't want to get out Yeah, because it feels safe and it feels um kind of relaxing on a certain level also triggering on a certain level many things at the same time but all of them good and it's such a refreshing thing to feel other than the confusion and the whatever
1: well one thing i will say is that you can choose and i can choose to stop at any time and that was something like that was a big fear for me talking about this in therapy that's why i think a lot of people experience this i'm going to step into the abyss and i'm going to get swallowed by this it will i will never get out you know but one thing that my therapist said to me that really and not just her others said this as well that i can when the end of when it, the conversation is over it's done yeah. i could say okay i did i we talked about that and now i'm done and i can go eat a sandwich or like listen to music i don't have to stay in this place i was here it was a nice warm jacuzzi and i can i can step out and dry off you know what i mean and that's like that's a good that's it's good to have, to develop that habit too i think like to to say i talked about it and now but this isn't You know, the only thing that we are, we are many other things besides this history Mm -hmm. and we can, we can step into and out of it and we are in control of that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's, I don't know if that's helpful to you, but it's helpful to me to think that like when I leave here today, I can go and um, swim in the pool at the hotel with my friends who I'm meeting. You know what I mean? Yeah. and and I don't have to carry this with me. I can choose for it to be over. I'm not a child anymore. I am in charge of when it is over.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: <sighs> Rebecca? Yes. Paul? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Really, yeah. I I am so truly grateful for the resource that this show is for people like me. Um Really thank you. It's an incredible service that you offer to us to talk about this stuff frankly
0: well it helps it helps me more than you guys will ever realize. I say it all the time, but it I do it as much for me as uh, as I do it for you guys it is it has helped me as much as support groups if not if not more it really has so thank you thank you uh, again many many thanks to Rebecca for her patience uh and waiting for this episode to go up since 2014. Um, I know that that she probably forgot about it, but um, anyway, for those of you that were confused listening to it, like, why is he talking about his wife? Are he and his wife back together? No, this uh, this is from a while ago. But um, Brooke, who uh, edited it, assured me that it was a good episode and that I wasn't uh, talking too much about my... My bullshit. That's uh, so tiring sometimes, <laughs> having my brain. I, I know you guys relate. I, I think everybody's got some some portion of their brain that just pesters them and just distorts reality. Anyway, um, let's dive into some, some surveys. Uh, and actually, before we do that, I have, this is an email that I got from uh a listener, uh, they're asexual and agender, and uh, they would like to be referred to as B. And they wrote, Hello, Paul. I enjoyed this week's episode with Mahogany, but in the fears and loves with her, she said she had a fear of being asexual, and you said that there was nothing wrong with someone choosing to be asexual. Neither of these wordings are helpful for describing asexuality and perpetuate harmful stereotypes. Let's help fix that. Number one, asexuality is not a choice. It's like any other sexual orientation. You do not choose to be straight, gay, or even asexual. Asexuality is the lack of experiencing sexual attraction. It doesn't mean that you don't experience romantic attraction, sensual attraction, or even aesthetic attraction. It just means that you don't look at someone and think, I am sexually attracted to them. Three, asexuality is not a lack of libido. Four, you can still have and enjoy sex as an asexual. There are sex-positive, sex-neutral, sex-repulsed, and sex-indifferent asexuals. There are asexuals in the kink community. Again, asexuality is only a lack of sexual attraction. I like to equate it to food. Think of a food everyone seems to love, but you hate I'll use coffee in this example because, honestly, I'm a tea person. Everyone looks at coffee and wants to drink it. As an asexual, when I see coffee, I don't want to drink it. I could enjoy its aesthetic, how the cream mixes into the dark uh, liquid, aesthetic attraction, and I may even drink coffee because I like the caffeine or flavor of the blend. Um, parentheses, can still participate and enjoy sex. I can have coffee because it is social to go out and have coffee, and my partner enjoys it. I can enjoy the smell of coffee, but I don't look at coffee and think, yes, this is my drink. I may have made it more confusing, but I hope this helps in some way. As always, enjoy the show, and thanks for all you do, Paul. That was incredibly illuminating and so helpful, Uh Thank you so much for, for sharing this. Um, one of the things I love about hosting this show is y- when you guys help educate me on something or share your experience, it is so helpful to me, not only as a uh, podcaster, but just as a human being to, to understand your experience, what it feels like to be in your skin, and that really helped clarify things for me. And here's the bad news. I'm a doddering old fuck, and in 30 minutes, I will have forgotten what it was that you shared with me. This is from the love survey uh, filled out by May, and she writes, "I don't know if it's just me, but I love when I wake up a few minutes before my alarm is due to start ringing. Like, hand me a goddamn sticker because for once my brain is ready to go." That's one that we actually get quite a bit uh, on on this one, and I like that you added that that you're ready you're ready to go because a lot of times we'll wake up before our alarm, but we're not happy to be awake. <laughs> And that would uh, that would describe me. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by Doctor Dan, and uh, he struggles with. Uh, he writes ASPD, which I have to assume is antisocial personality disorder. And he writes, "It feels like looking into a house with all your friends who are laughing and joking, and you are outside wondering why they're all acting weird." And a snapshot from his life. I'm constantly bored, and as a result, cause drama with my friends for my amusement. I've lost countless friends because of this. That is one of the more fascinating things that I've ever read. I don't come across many people who um, disclose that they have antisocial personality disorder. I I would imagine the majority of people who have that um, do not think uh, that they have it. Uh, I'd always assumed it was kind of like narcissistic personality disorder in that by the very nature of it, you would say that the, the issue is with other people. So that is interesting to know that you are self-aware uh, about that and you can kind of see the objective truth of, of what's going on. So thank you for sharing that. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Dylan and uh dylan writes i love mourning doves and their singing slash cooing i love the word node i love stuffed animals that have heavy limbs the stuffed animal thing kind of makes me feel like i'm holding a small living animal so i always felt the need to be gentle and i like being gentle Oh, and I love smelling the air outside as soon as the sun rises and looking at the moon no matter what phase it's in. And I always love the smell of rain, especially when the bushes that react to rain start to give off their after-rain scent where I live. And that's very poetic. Thank you for those, Dylan. Almost felt like I should uh, have read those by a fountain with birds chirping. Smoking a pipe. This is, uh, from the Ask Paul Anything and, uh, Anne writes, I'm new to the podcast, but I'm wondering if you have recommendations on finding a support group like the one you are a part of. Uh, I've struggled with drug or alcohol addiction. Uh, I don't, uh, this survey got cut off, so I'm, uh, stumbling a bit to, uh, fill in the words here. Uh. I do identify with codependency and love addiction, and unsure how to find a consistent support group in these virtual times. There's a website called In the Rooms, and I always forget whether it's .org or .com, but Google it. And they're mostly twelve-step groups. I'm a big fan of twelve-step groups, and they have every imaginable uh, one that 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 you can find. Um, Obviously, there are non-twelve-step uh, groups. I know uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, has support groups for a variety of issues. Um, but I would I would go check out in the rooms, um, and if you want in-person meetings, just Google uh, the issue that you're having, and um, and add the word support group or twelve-step. Hope that helps. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Rosemary's Teenager. Ah, oh, what a great name. What a great name. Paul, help a girl out. I have a friend whom I met four years ago. We were really close for a while, and I felt completely deeply, deeply romantically In love with her. We shared some of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. I always wondered if she felt the same because, well, sometimes the vibe between two people just says it all, you know? But I never dared to ask because she has a husband, so I did my best to be a considerate friend and move on. I've done everything in my power to do that, and from an outside perspective you'd think I would have gotten there by now. I've done extensive therapy, invested time in my work, focused my attention on family and other friends, and so on. It doesn't matter. Four years later, I still lie awake every night missing her and wishing I still had her in my life. In parentheses, I haven't entirely cut contact with her. We do text sometimes, but it's not the same. I've told myself over and over that she isn't right for me if she loves someone else, that I deserve more, and all the rest of it, but here I still am. I even tried to date, but had to break it off early multiple times because it felt wrong to start something new with another person while I was still pining for someone else. Will this pain just be the rest of my life? What should I do? Has this happened to you before? Wow, those are all great questions. And I think an all too common situation for for people. This has not happened to me before God knows I have a gazillion intimacy issues that I have worked through and some I'm still working through, but this has not been um, one of them. And a couple of things pop into my my head. There might be some love addiction going on here. Um, One of the hallmarks of love addiction and sex addiction is we become attracted to people who are either literally unavailable because they're married or you know live in another country or or who are emotionally unavailable people who are distant people that don't let us get close to them and it's kind of like catnip we want what we can't have and we're bored or repulsed by people who are present and are emotionally open and desire intimacy and there's a book i would recommend uh, you read uh, called facing love addiction by pm melody and i think that will answer a lot of your questions if this is uh, indeed the, the case with you uh, one of the things that's so hard to wrap our brain around is that when we are really pining for 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 somebody else um, very often we're we're creating a a fantasized version of that person. Even if we feel like we know them totally well, we fantasize about what it would be like to, to be their partner, and very often it has nothing to do with that actual person. And you know, when you see people that get married five, six, seven times, you know that is often the case with them because they create this idealized version. Oh, if I could only be with them, I would be happy, and they. Build this person up on a pedestal, and then when they start living with them, they find out oh they're just a you know a, a, a human being like everybody else, and they have their flaws, and and then you know they're disappointed, and they want to move on, and they keep looking to to somebody else, and very often they're just reliving some type of um, void that was in their childhood a lack of connection with a caregiver or some other type of abandonment or trauma i i hope that makes sense but i think that it would be um helpful uh maybe maybe your therapist isn't good at specializing in love addiction there's uh, a lot of therapists out there that don't really understand sex addiction or love addiction it's a very complicated uh thing and but fortunately there are certified sex and love addiction therapists but again i'm not a therapist so i don't know if that's what's going on with you but it's a possibility so i hope that helps this is from the love survey filled out by rosie and uh She writes, I love that this morning when my pill alarm went off, my seven-year-old son turned it off for me and brought me my depression medication. I love that he understands exactly what it is, medicine for mama's brain. I love that he feels comfortable asking me questions about my medicine and my brain sickness. And I love that I am well enough to answer in appropriate terms for his age. I love that even though I put him through some horrible shit when I was at my worst, I've put us both in our own therapies and I can now say I do my best every single day to be the mom he needs. I'm not perfect by any means, but I sure as hell try to give him what he needs on his most meltdowny days. I will be very honest and clear in saying that I don't love being a mom. I do love being his mom, though. There is a difference. And I gotta assume you're not telling him that you don't love being a mom, because that would uh even though, you know, if you said, uh, I don't like being a mom, but I like being your mom, that, that would, I think that would still probably fuck with the kid's head. But, um, I really love that, that you've righted the, the ship and you've taken responsibility for, um, your health and, uh, and your kid feels comfortable talking to you about uh, about that stuff and hopefully he doesn't feel responsible for keeping you uh you well it's amazing how kids sometimes the burdens that they will take on you know they'll make up stuff in their head and think oh it's up to me to to do this or do that but it sounds like you got a good relationship with your uh with your kid and you know we all fuck up we all make mistakes um, especially when we got demons chasing after us. But, uh, you know, I just love it when I see somebody say, you know, enough is enough. I need help. I I, I can't keep doing this. This is an awful moment filled out by <laughs> Steamy Turd Pile. And she writes, It didn't take me too long to know that I'd found the right therapist. I was talking to him about my self-loathing and how I felt like I was worthless And he said right back to me, well, at least a pile of shit has nutrients. I wonder if he introduced the pile of shit or if you did. Because if he introduced that, that's a little shocking. But uh, still, I love when a therapist has a sense of humor, you know, and they feel like a human being. That's got to be tough for a therapist, though, to know when to bring humor into, uh, into something. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Sparrow. And she writes, I've been struggling intensely these last six months with bipolar two, chronic suicidal thoughts, and severe anxiety. I pin down that a huge part of my anxiety comes from worries that if I don't do something, I won't be lovable. For example, I worry that I will one day lose my family's or friend's love if I don't get married, have kids, have some fantastic career, etc. I feel like I have to do these things to, quote, earn other people's loves. I was talking on the phone tonight with my mom, and she was helping me work through these feelings, and I just broke down and confessed that I was worried I could ever do something that would make her less proud of me and not love me anymore she immediately gave me the most genuine and beautiful beautiful response I could have ever asked for. She told me she and my dad love me so much and just want to see me feel better, and that even though I've done so many great things already, that even if I didn't do anything else, they would still always love me and be proud of me. She told me I was a good person and pointed out several of my positive qualities, again reiterating That she loves me and will always love me and nothing will ever change that. I broke down sobbing. It felt so good to hear. That will be something I will never forget. I felt so intensely accepted and loved. All I could do was cry happy tears. I will never forget my mom's words. It felt good knowing I make a difference in other people's lives and that I may not always have the most accurate perception of myself. I felt my body just kind of melt when she said that. And I wanted to sob for a long time out of relief. We were on the phone. Otherwise, I'm sure I would have given her the biggest hug ever. That is so beautiful. God, do I love hearing parents and and kids making a connection. Really, anybody expressing love that isn't dependent on something, you know, um, it's, it's such an important part of our lives. And, and so many, so many of us feel like we need to be something or do something to be a valid human being. And, um, unconditional love is just so fucking powerful. It's so powerful. Mm. Give your mom a hug for me next time you see her in person. That's so awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed our episode, and I hope I'm not annoying you too much with uh, these episodes that were recorded a while ago. But that's it is what it is, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be mixing in some uh, new ones with uh, with these old ones, and uh, I'm gonna try try to not be too hard on myself about about these. And uh, there you have it. If you don't like it, go fuck yourself. And I mean hard. I mean no lube, bare room, bare light bulb, you know, one of those beds with the springs sticking out of it, right in your back, just digging into your back. Neon sign flashing outside your window, just like a shitty 80s movie. Maybe even a guy on on the fire escape playing a saxophone. Looking at you and then just shaking his head in disgust. Yeah, that's how I want you to go. Fuck yourself. This is this is taking a terrible turn. <laughs> if you're out there and you're you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely
1: beautiful. fucked up, I know in up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully <laughs> up weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.